Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to Mic Drop, the podcast where relevancy is irrelevant and we don't give a shit about your feelings. Ladies and gentlemen, as always, it's both an honor and a privilege slash pleasure to have on my next guest, who is a uh, brother of mine in terms of our Navy experience. Uh, he spent 10 years as a Navy SEAL. He was a government security contractor and intel professional and is now currently the co-founder and senior vice president of a nonprofit called Deliver Fund. Welcome to the podcast, Jeremy Mayhew. Hey, thanks, brother. It's great to be with you. No, it's goddamn good having you here. I'll tell you, it, uh, you know, when I a found out that you were that you just moved down to Dallas uh, not too long ago and and had started this organization, uh, which we're going to get into real heavy. I just I was like, you know, I'm I'm not surprised in in uh, in knowing what kind of guy you are in terms of uh, the work that you've put into it and, and the type of mission that you guys currently do. Um, but I was, um, while not surprised, I was still really really happy and proud to hear. Uh, all the great shit that you have going on with it. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm looking forward to bringing to light the uh, the gist of the mission and, and getting into the ins and outs of it uh, and, and giving people a really good perspective as to as to what the human trafficking trade uh, entails and and, uh, and what all is involved with it. So thank you for coming on and sharing it. Yeah, it's great to be with you, man. It's been uh, it's been a long time. Yeah. We uh, we went through training together and we both picked uh, or ended up on different coasts and uh Shit, I think it was 20 years since I saw you. Yeah, it's, <laughs> like, a, it's been a long fucking time. <laughs> and what's funny, I, you know, I've had uh, I've had a couple other guests on here. Uh, do you remember Impostato? Yeah. Clark, yeah, he, yeah. he was on a couple episodes ago, and I hadn't seen him in fucking forever either. And, uh, you know, what's neat is is to get to kind of catch up, you know, on air and, and uh, give people kind of some insight and a look into into our world and community and and just give, give you kind of, a, as a listener, an inside look into it. But uh, what's neat... I think is, you know, all the guys that I've kept in touch with and, uh, you know, or have circled back with such as yourself, you know, to, to see all the good shit that, uh, that people are doing in a lot of different ways is, is pretty awesome. So, um, yeah, I'm looking forward to, to getting into it and catching up with you here and, and talking about all this stuff. But, uh, so one thing that I, I I'm just going to throw out there, like I'm, I'm jealous of is that you were, uh, you were born in Kalispell, which, uh, you know, we'll, we'll get into that here in a minute. One thing, uh, one thing I, I do like to to start start the the process off with, just to get your mind flowing and lighten the mood a little bit, is just a quick lightning round of some uh, random questions 
that I, I promise I've not given them uh, at you know ahead of time and, and uh, get your get your take on a couple of things. But uh, one thing I do like to ask every single person the same first question is uh, what does your morning routine look like? <laughs> that's a that's a great question <laughs> and. <laughs> It's like one of those things where, you know, you, you listen to like Jocko or, or somebody and you know, they're like discipline and you got to get up and you get listen to McCrave and he's like, first thing you do is make your bed. And I'm just like, all that seems like such horseshit to me. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I like, I get it in theory, yeah. but I'm like, that's, that's like officer talk or something, right? Who the fuck uh, like who, who does that? Yeah. Uh, yeah, my wife does that. She she wants the bed made in the morning. But no, for me, I think that there's, you know, I, I kind of go through an ebb and a flow. It depends on what I have going on in my life. Um, right now, I mean, earlier this year, I started out and I was trying to do the get up at five thirty every morning, go yeah. work out, and, and that worked. I can't do it. That worked okay. Yeah. But then that means I have to go to bed much earlier. Yeah. And I think people, different people have different kind of like a genetic phenotype, whatever. Oh, yeah. Right. So. I think I fall into the spectrum where I'd rather stay up late no, I do because I d you definitely need that quiet time yeah. at some point in your day. Yeah. But for me, I would much rather stay up till 2 a.m. So from dinner time to 2 a.m. where it's my quiet time to work and get things yeah. done. And then I wake up at like seven. Yeah. Unless, I, unless I have meetings, I do have meetings sometimes that are, yeah. are, uh, the, the 7 a.m. meetings, which yeah. I get up a little bit earlier, but that's, that's usually, uh, you know, my morning routine. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> The same deal, man. Like, I, I remember when you and I were just just out of just out of buzz, and and uh, like I don't remember a lot of things from way back then, but I remember you saying something about we were we were a bunch of young guys. We we're all trying to figure out like what should our workout be now that we're out of SEAL training, right? Like out, now that we're done with buzz and we're like going into the you know like what should we be doing in the gym? And me, you, and maybe happy and a couple other people were standing around there and, and you were like, you know what? I just think that as long as you get in there and do something <laughs> like it's going to be effective over time. But that's yeah. like the most true statement like yeah. that I've ever heard because as we're 20 years down the road, like just trying to do be consistent about doing something yeah. really makes a huge effect. So for me, I've gone through these periods of times. We probably talk about it in the future a little bit about like I worked on a political camp. I went from working for, the government where I had plenty of time to work out yeah. pretty much at any point during the day yeah. <laughs> to, to the point where I was working on a political campaign where there's never enough time in the day to get the things done yeah. that you need to do. And if you've got a work at good work ethic, the first thing you really throw away is, is your workout and your, and that your exercise. So I did that for a year and I, you know, I, it takes a, a strong effect on, it takes a toll on your health. Yeah. And then you reach that point, which is kind of where I've got to in the last couple of years of like, okay, like I have to do something. Yeah. And so I I mean, I don't go crazy. I'm not doing CrossFit every every morning like I wish I was. But I, but I, you know, I spend the time usually midday to go get a workout in or yeah. uh, something like that. So I mean, because uh, I, I do kind of a, a similar thing in terms of I, I don't like to get up super early. I mean, I, I'm usually up between seven and eight, but and I stay up way later than most people too because I'm I find I'm more productive like late at night. I do a lot of shit late at night that most people don't do. They're either in bed or watching TV or whatever. But yep. But I have a pretty specific morning routine, which at some point I'll, I'll outline on uh, on this podcast, not on this one for the sake of brevity. But uh, what I am curious, though, is like, so you get up at seven, uh, you, you work out later in the day. Is there like a, a specific series of things other than, you know, piss and excellence first thing in the morning and scratching your ass? <laughs> is, uh, you know, is there anything like... 
okay, you get up and like, do you drink water? Do you fucking get coffee? Do you fucking check your email? Like, is there, is there like a series of maybe half a dozen or so different things that no shit, like every morning, this is how I start the day with. Yeah. I mean, I typically do, I typically do coffee and, uh, every once in a while I get on kind of that, that bulletproof. I don't know if you've heard oh, yeah. of that. Yeah, yeah. You know, I sometimes make my own coffee where I got yeah. the, I've got the the butter and the brain octane, four thousand calorie cup of <laughs> Load, loading up first thing in the morning. Then I don't yeah. have to think about food again until like two two yeah. in the afternoon. Yeah, um, I do that. I really like to make my own make my own coffee and um, French press it and do that whole deal. And then I I prefer to ease into my day, but it usually starts right from the time I get up. I'm I'm checking messages mm-hmm. and and trying to respond to to things like just from from the 7 a.m wake up call yeah it's just working yeah getting getting after it right into it well good shit um all right so what is, what's your favorite carry out pizza both brand and style <laughs> yeah, no, you didn't see that uh, one coming damn it i'm trying to stay away from carbs too man what's up like you hit this point in your life you, yeah, you can't you eat. up the you up the fat and lower the carbs and that what we're <laughs> supposed to do no, but I love pizza. There's actually a place in Dallas right next to me, right, right next to my uh, my place, and uh, couldn't even tell you the name. I just run in there and grab pizza all the time. But there's there's some great pizza places around the world. But when if it comes to just a quick fast food, as a kid, I've always Pizza Hut's just been like, yeah. it, it's it's not that great of a pizza, but it's it's my go to, right? Yeah. Like it's my go to. What, what kind of pizza? Just a, greasy old crust what what uh what what type of pizza just is it? meat lovers man meat throw, lovers. throw it all on there fucking meat lovers <laughs> don't know where to, there's about 10 different places we can go with that one yeah. fucking meat lovers. Uh-huh. uh favorite gun that you own and you have to see so here's the deal i know you're you're a hunter and uh obviously your profession like you probably have a, a slew of them the same way most of us do but you have to pick just one yeah. and and it can't be well it depends on what i'm doing sure you gotta pick just one yeah right tool for the right job yeah so I had the good fortune of having a gun company based out of Kalispell, Montana, which was Nemo Arms, and they've since then moved to Idaho. But they were the first ones to make a 300 Win Mag in an AR platform. Oh shit! So you've got this gas-operated gun, and when I first saw a video of a girl shooting it, and it was just like it wasn't taking that much impact on her, I was like, that ah, something's. Yeah. And then when I shot it's it, the 22. first time I shot it, I literally was standing up and had somebody film it in slow motion and it just didn't even kick. I'm like, this is a three, you know, you go to sniper school and yeah. you've got like bruises on your shoulder from shooting. Is and, it, uh, so that's a, it's a super awesome weapon yeah. and it's uh, extremely accurate. And I, I shot, you know, a mile out to a mile at a, at a, uh, basically a 20 by 40 inch target. So oh, kind shit. of a man size silhouette at a mile. It's pretty, pretty so, I mean, epic. is that like a fucking quarter minute of angle accurate type of accuracy gun? Or I mean, that's like yeah. bolt gun fucking. Yeah. Accuracy. I would, I would say like given, given the right barrel on there, it's uh it's, it's at least half minute. Sub-hand. Some, sometimes it can shoot yeah. quarter. God damn. Nemo arms. Yeah. Shout out to fucking Nemo yeah. arms. Then, have to get, get somebody on you're here. Welcome. Shit. Welcome to Nemo. <laughs> They're good people there too. Yeah. They really are. They're, uh, fr- friends of mine, so i'm curious about the uh like the buffer spring and recoil uh spring or what you know like yeah what, what kind of system they have to to reduce recoil to that degree where it's like yeah they engineered something and they actually are taking that and put it in 308s as well so you can buy like that kit just for a 308 oh, okay. which is uh which is a pretty nice yeah. option specific well. to their firearms or to no in, you can yeah. drop it in any oh, other shit. yep that's fucking cool but, to look into that yeah it's all on that i mean it's all that system is really what makes it the yeah. the, the heat yeah. that's good shit 
Uh, best hazing story from Naval Special Warfare. <laughs> yeah, we're going there. Oh, man. <laughs> uh, I didn't uh, hazing against me, I assume. Well, uh, honestly, it could have been I, somebody I, else. Because I, I never haze anybody. <laughs> yeah, sure you didn't. Yeah. No, man, I remember, I think we were going to one of those uh, fine establishments in North Carolina where the girls are friendly enough to take their tops off for you and uh, <laughs> that's nice of them it, it, we took the the navy 16 passenger van there <laughs> and and one of the guys well call him out john franklin great great guy great guy but he was only a couple years older than i was but a man he 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 was like you want to get a little froggy and uh, <laughs> of course man i go so we 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 worked our way all the way from like the front seat of that 16 passenger van all the way to the back seat, <laughs> wrestling awesome. all the way back up to the front seat. And I ended up head down in the, in the passenger <laughs> seat. And he had, he had a, uh, a forearm on my larynx to the point where literally I'm pretty sure bruised, if not crushed part of my larynx to the Jesus point where fuck. I couldn't really speak well for like two weeks. And, and so all the girls that night thought I was just some sort of fucking invalid. Smoker. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Got a fucking voice box. <laughs> yeah, I, I promptly gave one. So, he, he, so he didn't even tape you up or fucking no that shit. Just an no, ass beating, pretty just much. Just just ass beating. Yeah, I remember I got fucking taped up. Uh, this was on a trip to um, Monterey. I got taped up in the back <laughs> of a fucking rental car. It was my first platoon, and I think it was, I think it was like our first actual platoon trip where where we left you know outside of the area, and not just you know went to like a local local training ground or whatever and uh yeah the guy tom retzer rest in peace who uh, we lost in, in afghanistan and in, in october of 02 was uh was the the main perpetrator of it but uh yeah i mean christ i remember i mean i got lobster i mean he used a whole fucking roll of rigors tape and and uh him and one of my best friends now uh shane uh which there's been a couple of people asking about him on the podcast <laughs> we'll get him on here sometime shane hyatt calling you out but uh <laughs> Anyway, so yeah, I got got fucking taped up and uh, got the shit beat out of me, and then they left me in a parking lot. It was fucking, it was awesome. True story. But uh, anyway, we'll we'll save my hazing stories for another time, uh, or any more of them anyway. But uh, this uh, this one, I uh, I'm 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 always curious in terms of where people have been. Is uh, what's the coolest place on earth that you've ever been? And whether it's you were working, you're on vacation, traveling through, whatever. Like, is there a place? on this planet that sticks out as being like the, the coolest fucking spot you've ever been. Hmm. Been a lot of cool places, but I'm pretty biased. My hometown, I've got glacier, uh, glacier national park is right hmm. there. And to be quite honest, there's probably no place I'd rather be on the, on, in the whole earth. <laughs> yeah. Well, to me, I mean, like if, if you're wherever you're from, if, if at this point with all the places you've been, you still say that, I mean, that says a lot. And I, I mean, I've been up to glacier. I, what is it? Lake McDonald. that's up there. Yep. Or McDonald Lake. Yep. I mean, holy shit, like that place is fucking magic. Yeah, it really is. Yeah. What's I mean, crazy is, you know, it was only recently that I started to to venture a little further north across the border. And Canada has like it it seems like the mountains just get bigger. Yeah. And and it's pretty epically That's awesome too. Said. So I've been, yeah, I know, right? <laughs> so I've been kind of taking these motorcycle tours where I'll I'll run up to Banff and then kind of Lake Louise and make that that tour. 
start, I mean, you're hitting Glacier Park, Waterton National Park, and just kind of making that that run, and it's yeah. just so epically awesome. Yeah, no, I, I uh, the time that I have spent in Montana has made me uh, want to live there. There's no, no, or at least, you know, be able to spend a fair bit of time there. Like, God damn it. Until like, wintertime and it's negative 30 yeah. degrees. I, and then, to me, know, I actually, Texas I like it. Texas looks better. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I, I actually like it growing up in northern Iowa. I mean, it's yeah. not, not quite quite that cold, but pretty goddamn close. And uh, <laughs> I mean, it's it's every bit as fucking miserable. But, uh, but to me, I like the change of seasons and... And I, I like cold, shitty weather as long as I have a, a good fire going and I have proper gear to be out in. It, yeah. I, I fucking love it. But yep. last but certainly not least, uh, what's three things that you are most grateful for? Hmm. Well, I was I was grateful for uh, family, and uh, I'm actually starting a new family right now. I'm no shit, 41 years old, and and just uh, this year getting married, and and actually have a have a find out Thursday, but I, I think a son. Oh on no the way. shit, yeah. So you don't so, know yet for sure? I don't know yet. I'm going to find out Thursday. Um, we're about 17 weeks long. So, I mean, I'm pretty grateful for that. I mean, yeah. I, did, I didn't think I was going to live to see 40. <laughs> I thought I was going to be retired at 40 if I did live yeah. that long. All those things didn't come true. I'm, now you'd be now up I'm, at 2 in the morning wiping yeah. ass and fucking yeah. cleaning up puke. Yeah. But, I, I mean, I be honest with you, like, I wake up every day and and I'm, I just, that's one thing that I, I do is just, you know, thank the good Lord for the, for the day. And, yeah. and I'm grateful for, for every day and, and, and really just my relationships with, with people, the yeah. people that are in my life are just, uh, maybe, maybe the most important thing there. So. Yeah. Well, amen. Fucking right on with that. Um, I, as somebody, I know we were talking a little bit about this when you first got here, but, uh, you know, my kids are a little bit older. I had them, had them when I was younger in my mid, mid twenties, but, uh, like honestly, no shit. The problem. And I'm not trying to fucking set you up for failure here, but <laughs> too, too late. But holy She's fuck, already pregnant. <laughs> I mean, like goddamn the 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 prospect of of going through all of that uh, at this age is something that uh, I you know like it, it would give me a little bit of a pause. Like I just I, I can't imagine you know, and I think some of it is well, not some of it. I, I would I would suspect that a lot of it is because I went through it you know from my early twenties until now, spending sure. the last you know well over a decade, um, you know as a as a as a dad and and raising kids and, and everything that comes along with it. It it, it uh, subtracts a lot of things that as a single guy you you would be able to do whether it's mm-hmm. professionally traveling you know whatever. Um, you know, and, and so there's, you know, just like people always say, grass is always greener. Like it's it just, you know, to me, it's, there's an element to both that, uh, you know, in, in the one respect, like it's nice that they're a little older now and that they can help out and like, I'm not having to wipe their ass and, or at least not most days. And, uh, you know, just like they can, they can do things, you know, and, and sure. not having to, to monitor them 24 fucking hours a day like you do with a newborn in that first few years or whatever and just how how big of a toll it takes i look at pictures back when i when they were first born versus now and i'm christ i look like a kid back then you know like the the and the, yeah so i know you guys are listening uh the, the wrinkles and the gray hair and the, and the loss of hair is uh is 100 from from them no no fucking two ways about it but but anyway i mean i'm happy for you um doesn't mean I don't think you're crazy, but uh, but I am happy for you, and I'm I'm just going to say welcome to the fucking club, right? <laughs> but, I'm afraid uh, if I would have done it any younger, I probably wouldn't have had the uh, the ability to 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 stick it out, man. It's, yeah. I've I've gone through a lot of life lessons that have been continuing to work on my uh, 
my, I guess, selfishness, right? Like, (laughs) you know, and like being in a relationship is, is one thing that really hones you in on the fact of how selfish you are and how selfish somebody else is. And and you got to like bring those things together. And then having a kid is the ultimate, like a, a, all of that. So. Oh, yeah. yeah, I mean, that's the reality yeah. is that you're both going to yeah. take a back seat, you know, to one another uh, in terms of where that kid comes in. And it, yeah, it can be it can be a challenge for sure. But uh, but hey, best of luck to you. <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, yeah. you'll, be, you'll be all right. Um, all right. So just kind of a quick rundown. So you were born in Kalispell. What, what was that that experience like in terms of growing up? you know, in a mountainous region, you know, hunting sports, like what, uh, what, what did hunting and sports and, and being outdoors growing up in a, in a place like that, uh, how, how did that play a role? Yeah. So I was really, really fortunate. My dad was a school teacher, so we didn't have a lot of money and we had to go out and, and figure things out in the woods and hunt for our food a lot. And, uh, but he also, because you're a school teacher, you got some time off. So, yeah. So it kind of ended up pretty good for me as a kid growing up in Montana. I really got to do a lot of outdoor stuff. And uh, and that's where my heart is, too. But I remember when I was growing up and, we, you know, I live in kind of the Whitefish area, Kalispell Whitefish, which is right in the heart of uh, a beautiful valley. And our winters can get cold, mm-hmm. but they typically are nothing like eastern Montana where it's more prairie land. And then yeah. it's just windy and you yeah. uh, like Iowa, right? That's like, how it is. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, there's nothing breaking. It just yeah. fucking kicks so your ass. It just kicks your ass. Yeah. And, and I went out one day and we were hunting antelope. My dad was never the one to like really show me and mentor me into hunting. He was kind of like, I'm going this way. Here's a map, which you don't know how to read, <laughs> but I'm going to go this way. And I'm going to take this big loop and you just kind of wander around and you hit a road and head back that way. Yeah. You know, and, and it was what it felt like. Yeah. And so, that, you know, I went out and I was probably like, I don't know, 15, maybe 16 years old. And it was the first antelope I ever shot. And, and, uh, I get out there and I see like, I'm by, so I'm by myself. There's a storm coming. I can see it. You yeah. can feel it. Right. Like, and, but I'm, I'm a couple miles out from where we were, uh, where we kind of staged the vehicle and stuff. And so I'm out there by myself hunting and, you know, I don't want to quit till I get something. So, so I, I end up seeing three antelope and they're out there on this hill. It's like, it's really close. I kind of like stalk through like these little gollies and I get really close, pop up. I'm like, boom, they're right there. And so I, I take a shot. I've got like a 243. Like that was my, my hunting gun that my go dad, to. my, my go-to. And, uh, I wasn't very accurate with it. You know, um, I, I I'd never really been shown how to shoot. I kind of had to figure that out on my own a little bit too. And so, <laughs> priceless. Yeah. And Here's so, a gun. You'll figure it out. Oh, I wasted like <laughs> I wasted so much ammo on like shooting at stuff that was like a thousand yards because yeah. I could see it in my scope and yeah. I thought somehow I could hit it. <laughs> Not true. With a um, 243. Yeah. But on this circum, this certain one, I ended up shooting an antelope, and I was like so I was like so excited. My yeah. br- my older brother was always the one too to just go out there and fill everybody else's tags for him. He's that yeah. dickhead. And so <laughs> like there was times where I never got to shoot a deer because he got out there and. He, we only been walking for five minutes. All I hear is like, bang, bang, bang. My brother filled all our tags for us, you know? Yeah. So I was like really excited. Cause I'm like, here's three. I'm on it. Like I got, I got one. And then antelope are really dumb. They're really curious. So like they rent the two that didn't fall down, ran to the next little hill and stopped. And I'm like, Oh, I'm totally getting another one. <laughs> I didn't have a tag <laughs> for another one, but I did. I shot a second one. Yeah. And then the third one ran to the next hill. And I'm like, ah, I can't like yeah. probably wouldn't hit it, but also, 
um, I've already got two to deal with. So, and there's a storm coming. Yeah. So I'm not kidding you when I say the storm that rolled in, rolled in like within the next probably 40 minutes oh, from sure. like after me shooting these. So I literally gutted out two and I didn't really know what I was doing, cutting these animals out either. It was just like, just learning on the go, man. (laughs) (laughs) But I've got, I've got these two animals and I didn't really have the whole, you know, kit of like, Oh, you should have like, you know, a rope to do this. And no, like I was out there with like a gun, a sling, like a fanny pack with some more bullets in it and my, like my belt. So what I ended up doing was I took my belt off and (laughs) I literally had antelope are pretty small, you know, they're prairie goat. So I don't know what it weighed, but by the time I got it out, maybe it was, you know, 60, 70 pounds. Yeah. I took one that was gutted out, bleeding all over and threw it over me because it was already starting to get cold and storms coming in. I'm literally walking with one antelope over top of me and my belt. I took off and wrap around the other one's head. I'm dragging it. And, and, and I walked out like, two or three miles like that. God and I damn. got to the, um, and I just didn't think it was anything, right? Yeah. Like, it's just what you do. Yeah. Like there's no, and so when you get to buzz and you, you, you see people who grew up in the city or something, you're just like, yeah, no, man, there's no quitting. Like, yeah. what is this? Like, <laughs> it could be worse. Like I've seen cold. Yeah. I've seen crazier things as yeah. a kid, you know, yeah, as a um, fucking beach vacation. Yeah. Well, so I'm curious then like growing up, uh, in that environment, you, like your, your dad and, and brother never showed you how to clean the fucking nope. clean. Well, my dad probably did at one point and I probably was looking at squirrels. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> fucking shiny. <laughs> I actually think that the, uh, towards the last year I was in the Navy, I came home. I would always try and come home and, and spend a couple of weeks just during hunt season. Cause I was maintained a Montana residence while I was in the Navy. Mm-hmm. And so I come home and get my hunt tag and go out. And, uh, he was, I literally landed one, one year f- flew in. He picked me up from the airport. We were going up to my cabin and, uh, saw a deer and I'm like, sweet. Literally from the airport on the way up, had a gun. He brought out, shoot this deer. And you know, now I'm like 20 and now I'm like, yeah, it's probably like 28, <laughs> you know? And, uh, my dad totally gutted the whole deal, the whole yeah. deer. And I was just like, totally let him like, yeah, I, I, it's been a while. I can't really remember. <laughs> How do you do that? I sat there and held the flashlight and made him, you know, it's just getting dark. Is that um, something you've, you've he, boned up on since? You know what? Like, uh, I'm just not that great at, <laughs> at, at doing that. Like it's yeah. still just rough. You know, yeah. I'm always afraid I'm going to, hit the bladder yeah. and do something. That makes so, me, that makes so me so feel better. So if somebody else is around <laughs> and they, and they're volunteering their skills, I let them yeah. do it every time yeah. you get a shoot on these ranches and the guys yeah. come out, they're like, Oh yeah, I got this. I'm like, man, that's really cool. Like how, how do you do this again? Yeah. I just let them run with so it. You're, you're happy to shoot and you let them fucking clean oh, up. Total yeah. prima donna, yeah. man. <laughs> like the fucking, the, the diva talent that just rolls in and fucking yep. gets the job done. Um, uh, so, so you had an older brother. Uh, was there any other kind of dynamic, um, throughout your family that, that had a, either a really positive impact or a detriment or something that kind of sticks out as being, uh, you know, a, a huge factor in your childhood that, uh, that kind of stands out. Now I ended up having a younger brother. I was about five years younger, older brother, about three years older. And, uh, you know, that was a interesting place to be in that middle child yeah. just because you know, my, my older brother and I could fight and I guess we were close enough in age that like it was a expected to be like a, you know, 
Yeah. I, it was a fair fight, he, but, but it wasn't, he had three years on me, yeah. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. and then if, if I, if my younger brother and I tried to fight at all or anything came up, like I had to stop because yeah. clearly I was taking advantage of a situation and, yeah. and you know, it's poor little brother. And so, but I, I mean, I, I never really, I never really got, I had a really good family we never really got into any kind of, you know, fights or anything like that, but, but we did play sports and because my older brother was really good at soccer it kind of allowed me a path into playing soccer with no these sure. guys who were years above me i mean back back in the day you know i mean this is like in the early 90s when they didn't really have like they didn't really have soccer clubs especially in montana well, i was just gonna right? say like like you don't think uh, oh you grew up in montana where yeah. you're a soccer player like yeah. you know, that's about the last fucking thing so I when think. i was like 12 13 years old i was playing on a u19 team because that's the only team there was right so you you just play up you play up to that level you you start learning quick oh shit uh, fucking soccer of all things that's interesting i mean we shit i didn't have a the town i grew up in 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 waterloo um we didn't even have a fucking soccer team at the high school until like they they first got it i think when i was a sophomore or junior Mm Uh, but now, now it's a lot bigger, Sure, uh, but you know, yeah, fucking in the nineties, like soccer almost yeah. didn't exist. I was going to go to college and I wanted to play soccer, but there was really no, there was really no scholarships and yeah. I was poor. I just had to figure out. So I went in the Navy instead and maybe they'll pay my, <laughs> pay my college. But I ended up like playing, yeah. I got really lucky because the first year that the, the high school had a soccer team, they started a varsity team yeah. and, uh, I was a freshman. So I, I made it and I played all four years. I was like yeah. the only freshman for oh, quite sure. a while that actually played lettered four years in, uh, in sure. soccer there. Yeah. Was, uh, was your mom, a, a I, was a, big, I was a plank owner, you know, yeah, fucking yeah. <laughs> I can got the ring was, uh, was mom a, a big influence growing up or, I mean, you haven't, you haven't mentioned yeah. her yet. Yeah, I know I should have, right? Like I'm, <laughs> shout out I'm to mom. so not smart sometimes <laughs> should totally give a shout out to my mom. My mom was awesome. I, uh, in the early years, she she stayed at home with the kids and just made sure she took care of the home front, yeah. which I, I really think was a defining thing in the in the character of of, of me and my siblings. You yeah. Know? So, no, I mean, to me, I think it's uh, it's excruciatingly important for both parents to play uh, their perspective roles in uh, in child rearing. It makes mm-hmm. a, a huge a huge difference that you know it's one of those windows that you know in the first especially in the first five six years of a kid's mm-hmm. life like you can't Absolutely. once that window is closed i mean it's just like with a dog like there's a there's a window of you know about between six and eight months that yeah. uh that once once they're past that age like there's a lot of things if they haven't been exposed to or experienced it, it's really fucking difficult to to get them accustomed to them if they're uncomfortable with it but uh i grew up in somewhat of a sheltered home very uh you know conservative christian type home you guys did you travel much not a lot no not really i had some relatives that lived in seattle and and washington state so that was about the extent of my travel so my perspective was somewhat limited there but my mom you know she stayed home with us uh, until my little brother was in, in probably like first kindergarten, first grade. And she would drop him off, go to work as a secretary at an eye clinic and then come back, make sure she was there to pick him up. So, yeah. I mean, she was definitely, uh, instrumental in, in, a, in a lot of things. I mean, I, like I said, I, for a while, I kind of grew up somewhat sheltered. I mean, she, she kind of wanted us to play uh, Christian music in the house, which I didn't, <laughs> wasn't really a fan of. And, yeah. And, but on the secular side, we only, it was a small town. I mean, it was like in Montana, we had like one station that was like the rock station, yeah. you know? So I was always trying to flip the dial to that. And, uh, but yeah, we, we, she was, she was definitely, uh, 
like a, a defining factor in helping to build some character there. Yeah. Do you, do you think, uh, or what, what could you, or what would you attribute, uh, to what you do now in terms of the, the, the protector role of, of mm-hmm. the organization that you co-founded, do you think stems from, um, an influence that your mom had, if, uh, if any, yeah, it's interesting that you asked me, that. I don't think anybody's ever, ever actually posed that question. Um, I think that a lot of the, a lot of the, the discipline that I did have just to make it through, like, like making it through buds and just sticking the course there was instilled from my parents yeah. for sure. And, and also I think the area in which I was able to grow up in had, had a good effect on that. But I think that there's also just kind of a, a, uh, I mean, to this day, I'm, I'm, you know, I've, I've gone up and down in my faith, you know, but I, you know, to this day, I'm, I'm a, I'm a Christ believer. And I think that the, the my parents had a big play in, in that. Mm-hmm. And my mom probably spent a lot of years praying for me. Uh, well, I know that she, every time I come home from the Navy, she's like, man, what, <laughs> what went wrong? Yeah. What went wrong? But you know, over the years, you kind of come back to some of your roots. Right. And I, and I think for me, what I think is all humans we should be doing, but especially if we kind of take a a Christ like model is, is in service. You know, Mm -hmm. I think we, a lot of us in the military, definitely we, we focus on that, but I think a lot of our veterans as they get out, some of them find things to find service and purpose in, Mm -hmm. but I, I'm, I'm just a big believer in choosing uh, outcome over income and focusing on, on true purpose and, and then really seeing how you can serve others. And yeah. so that's kind of where I, you know, where I fall today, hashtag crushing evil. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, it's, yeah. well, and, and to me, like, uh, the, the perception I have of hearing about your childhood and, and growing up in that way and the kind of the matriarch role that your mom played and, and, uh, you know, your dad, you know, playing the role, you know, I mean, it's very, a very traditional to me mm-hmm. in, in a great way, uh, you know, of traditional parenting roles. And, and, you know, when I see guys like you and, and what you've done and, and now, you know, developing such a, such an incredible organization that you have and, and, and the good work that you guys do, like people don't do that shit by accident. And I can tell you as, as having been, uh, as being a founder of a nonprofit for, mm-hmm. for over 10 years, just at 10 years now, like you, it, you sure as fuck aren't making a ton of money doing it. Right. You know, so, um, like to me, it's, it, I'm always very, very curious and, uh, and fascinated by, uh, by, you know, not just what people do when it's a, when it's a unique and interesting story, just like you and, and all the other guests that we've had on, but, uh, but it's, it's the why, like, where does it come from? Cause again, like you know, the choice, you know, we're all, wherever you're at in life, you know, you're, you're a product of, of all the choices that you've made along the way. But, but a lot of them are so heavily influenced by, by parents, by family, by how you grew up, where you grew up, you know, the, the things that, that happened and transpired. That's why I always like to ask every guest, you know, morning routine, like what was your childhood like? Yeah. Cause I think, I think it really completes the, the picture and, and really gives people a, you know, kind of a good, good concept of, of why you're doing what you're doing and, and where it all comes from. And to me, that's equally as important, especially given how fucked up our society is. And, yeah. and uh, you know, if, if there's one thing that you can draw as kind of a common denominator of, of the guests that I've had on is, is that it's strong fucking parents, you know? Yeah. I mean, every one of them like awesome. has, has very, very direct and 
memorable and specific uh, memories of, of their parents doing certain things for them, instilling certain things in them. Uh, and to me, it just it just speaks volumes to the importance of, of good parenting and, and uh, you know, how relevant it, it always has been, still is today and, and always will be. But uh, it's, it's I love hearing it. So. It's a big deal. And the more I mean, there was a point where one of the things I wanted to do while I was still in the Navy was to is to get out and basically start something where I could take young men, maybe between the age of, I don't know, like. 12 and 18 and just take them out in the mountains in Montana yeah. and just say, you know, because there's so many, there's so many guys that grow up without a father mm -hmm. and, and there's a parent and, and, and yeah. And so like there's, you know, God bless the women who are, who are single moms, but like as a man, like you don't, you have, somebody has to mentor you into manhood. Mm -hmm. Like you yeah. have to have, somebody there my, well my dad may not have shot me taught me to shoot or or uh been been there for gutting out the first couple deer <laughs> yeah. um, but you know clearly he he was able to expose me to these kinds of yeah. um, activities and really like just teach teach the hard lessons and yeah. and and also i think what's important in our society is like an affirmation like as boys grow into men they need they need that affirmation from a, a father figure. And we're growing up in a society where like, it's just okay for our fathers to not be there yeah. and, and not, not be involved to the point where they're giving that affirmation. And, 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 you know, I mean, you look at these school shootings, you look at these kinds of mm -hmm. issues and you know, you can't tell me that there's not like massive issues in, in those families yeah. and every, every time and yeah. the, the family unit is really what has been, decrepitly falling apart in our society, which yeah. is stemming into all of these other issues to, to include the way that we treat women in the, in the, the whole human trafficking, sex trafficking side of things, which we'll, we'll get into. Yeah, no, agreed. Uh, you know, and, and to me, like that's, that's kind of the, the root cause of, of, you know, it, it's the absence of that, you know, talking about your dad, like, you know, while he didn't, didn't put, uh, you know, maybe, you know, maybe didn't teach you as, as well as he could have with shooting and, and gutting. The fact is, is that he put you in situations that, you know, gave you an ability to, to develop your character and, and teach you a lot of things that probably seemed like they were dumb at the time or whatever. But maybe, maybe the lesson there was like, go figure it out, adapt yeah. and overcome, which is actually more of an important lesson. Uh, right? Uh, uh, it absolutely is. I mean, I, I think one of the, one of the biggest reasons so many kids are so fucked up is because of helicopter parenting where, you know, parents are so fucking involved and so overbearing and so micromanaging in, the, in their parenting style that that kids, don't, I mean, like the only way you learn is by fucking up, you know, yeah. whether it's through through pain or through disappointment or, or whatever. And when that's when every element of, of stress and chaos and disappointment and failure and, and having to figure things out and, and having calculated levels of stress put on you to where you have to adapt and overcome and then ultimately it builds your confidence. When, when every aspect of that is removed, you know, that is why you have so many, um, you know, examples, terrible examples of, of kids growing into these, you know, safe space snowflake type assholes that uh you know that that can't have their feelings heard in, in college environments and, and need time off you know because something happened in the news and they need to you know delay an exam for three days like i mean it's fucking pathetic but yeah. but but you see it it's it's becoming more and more pervasive and i and i think you know a lot of it boils down to uh shitty parenting uh you know families not being families um you know and, and really taking taking that active role in, in raising kids to not be little fucking dipshits. But, um, 
Sure. We, you know, that, that could be its own podcast, which, uh, which it will be actually with, with my next <laughs> yeah. guest probably, but there you go. But, uh, but anyway, so, you know, it, again, it's, I see a lot of parallels between you and, and a lot of other guests I've had in terms mm. of, you know, the, the positive role that their parents played in upbringing and, and, uh, you know, it's no exception here. So that's uh, it's good shit to hear. Um, all right. So you and I both graduated high school in 96 and, and then joined, uh, joined the Navy right after that. And then you, we ended up uh, in, in Bud's class 214 together, which uh, is pretty pretty wild to sit here 20 years later as, as uh, classmates. But uh, I find it you know funny that you and I both got rolled for different reasons. But uh, sure did. So, so you got rolled in second phase, right? Holy smokes, did I ever! So tell, me, tell, <laughs> tell me about that. Oh man, you know it's not that I thought Bud's was easy to that point, but I thought like. I was doing pretty good. Yeah. And just for the listener, second phase is, is the diving phase of training. Yeah. There's three phases. The uh, first, first phase is basic conditioning. Second phase is diving. And then third phase is land warfare. And then, and then you yeah. graduate. But so being a boy from Montana, like I hadn't done much in the water, let alone yeah. under the water. Right. I literally grew up water skiing and that was the extent of like my, my water activity. I was really good at water skiing so good that I would ski into the dock and only have to either swim like two feet or just sit down on the dock as yeah. I was coming in <laughs> or I'd come in and spray everybody that was on the dock. Either yeah. way, I only had to swim very, not very far. Yeah. So before I came in the Navy, I started trying like, you know, learn how to swim a little bit better. And, uh, and I did that, but I wasn't, I definitely wasn't confident in mm -hmm. the water. And, you know, as we kind of went along, I got better at swimming because it was just, you know, keep, keep up, keep up, get better, get better. But as soon as we jumped in the pool to do any of the scuba stuff, you know, like I remember the first day that we, like everybody's in the pool, I'd never touched any kind of uba scuba, nothing before. And so like I was doing something wrong to this day. I'm still not really totally sure. I think they might've been screwing with me, but like I kept breathing water in and yeah. so we're in they were, the they were probably fine. we're in the <laughs> we're in the the four foot area of the pool right like yeah. all you're doing is yeah. like just kind of sneaking on down yeah. like, and, and bring your head on the water like a like a foot oh we gave you right? the swiss cheese hoses sorry about that yeah. <laughs> and so like <laughs> i don't know what i'm doing wrong but i i'm like i gonna stay down here as long as i can because I don't want to be, I don't want to fail. I don't want to, you know, be that guy. But finally I was like, can't, I can't drink water all day. So I, I stick my head up and then somebody starts yelling. I forget what instructor it was, but they're just immediately like, get back underwater. I'm like, bro, like there's <laughs> a reason why I'm standing out of the waters. Cause yeah. I can't, I don't have water lungs. Like I'm not a fish. So, yeah. so like that happened. And I don't know if that was like what maybe, you know, cause I think I did that twice. And finally the guy came over and he's like, you know, what I had was I just had water in my regulator. Right. Yeah. So I was getting, I had not actually just blown the water out of the regulator. Yeah. And so I just kept getting a little bit in every time. And I was like freaking out, but I didn't know. I never done that before. Yeah. So I came up a second time and they were like pointing at me and yelling and screaming. And the guy comes over and he, you know, does something to it, he basically cleared it. And then I go back underwater. I'm like, well, this is fine now, dick. You could have told me that. Like, yeah. uh, and so then, but I don't know if that like triggered them, like looking at me from the beginning, but I mean, rolled right into second phase and, and, uh, I'm like, okay, everything's, you know, I was a pretty good runner and I, I, I was passing my swims. And so like I, every, everything seemed like fairly smooth. And I rolled into pool comp and pool comp literally 
was the thing that uh, the first, you know, you get four tries, right? So the, f- the first try that I go down, and I think it's it was over two days. So each day you got like two chances. I, I can't, if, yeah, if I remember so. right, something like that. So, so the first day I get up there and I go down and I forget who the instructor was that day, but they had tied like this knot. The whammy knot. The, they, they literally tied the whammy knot like right off the bat. And so <laughs> in doing that, they had loosened up probably accidentally, but they had loosened up the exhalation or the uh, inhalation hose so that as soon as I went and got my tank and I started to pull on the hose, like I, I put it on, I, I started to trace everything out. As soon as I touched that hose, like it came off. Like, oh, I'm not kidding you. Like the whole the, fucking thing the, came so off. So it's just like <laughs> blowing air, right? Like it's just this massive bubbles coming up. And again, like I had never th- thought through like this process. So I'm sitting there like at 15, 12, 15 feet on the bottom of the pool. Like, what do I do? Well, I'm not a quitter. So I just sit there and I figure out how to like put my mouth over these bubbles that are coming up. And I'm like, this is really cool. <laughs> I'm doing something that I've never done before. Like mm-hmm. I'm I'm kicking yeah, ass, you're like figuring it right? out, like your dad. And, right? But I wasn't doing anything else. Yeah, like that's all I was doing was, was surviving, surviving on the bottom yeah. of the pool, breathing off these bubbles that were just coming up into my mouth. Yeah, and then the instructor promptly comes down and looks at me. And he, you know, I still haven't even got my goggles and my mask on, and he looks yeah. at me and he's like, "Come on, you're coming up." And, <laughs> and I and I was like really proud of myself. I thought like I'd done a good job, and he was like, "No, you failed. Like you're an idiot." <laughs> So, so my next, my next one was, you know, there was something else that wasn't a big deal on the second one, but it was enough to fail. And they kind of like to get guys to fail a couple times just so you feel a little bit of stress. seems like, uh, and then the next time, you know, there was something else wasn't a big deal. And every time they're like, Hey, it was was pretty good. You actually did pretty good. So, you know, you'll, you'll definitely get it the next time. I'm Nick, the host of the UFO Chronicles podcast with first-hand witness accounts of the strange and unexplained, covering UFOs, cryptids, conspiracies, and the paranormal. Real people, real encounters. So come with us on the journey into the unknown. UFO Chronicles podcast is available to listen to on all apps. I'll see you soon. On my fourth fourth chance, I think it was instructor Arno, uh, saying that right, but he, I didn't have a beef with that guy. I thought he was a cool instructor. I thought everything was cool. And, and I, and I, at this point I had been getting my confidence down a lot more because mm-hmm. it's my fourth time. Yeah. <laughs> and, 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 and so like, I, I went through the whole deal. I got the whammy knot. I got it out. Like I went and I was sitting there on my knees and, you know, and I double checked. I went through the whole procedure very calmly and I double checked, you know, those, those straps that come down. And to this day, like, so I I get out of the pool. He's like, great job. You pass. And I was like, sweet. And then he goes, Oh, wait a minute. Is that a half twist in, in your, uh, in your strap that your shoulder strap that comes down. And I'm kind of like, no, like it's totally the way it's supposed to be. Like, <laughs> I don't know how it could be a half twist. Like it literally has a half twist because up here it's attached flat and down here it's attached this way. So it has to twist halfway, right? Yeah. Like that's what I, but what are you going to do? Are you with him? Yeah. I don't know if you remember, <clears throat> I don't know if you were in the class at that point, but there was another guy who started with us and then ended up failing pool comp and he chose to argue with yeah. the instructor. Yeah. And so 
I liked him. He was a great guy, but that was the end of his SEAL career when he yeah. decided to argue with the instructors. Not knowing. And so uh, there was three of us that ended up failing, and I was devastated. And um, you remember uh, Coakley oh, yeah. and uh, and <laughs> Barrett, I think it was Barrett, was it the, yeah. the twins, you know, yeah, the, yeah. the messy room twins yeah. that always got us in trouble for everything. <laughs> Great guys, loved them. And they, they were both sitting there helping me out of the pool and grabbing my tank. And I took my fins and I just tossed them in a pile. Yeah. And my fins, my mask, I just because I just failed yeah. and I was like so upset with myself. Yeah. And so I just tossed them on the ground. Somebody saw that And shit. The, the proctor was sitting up in that lifeguard chair, looked down, and he was like, attitude problem. <laughs> so I got lumped in with the other guy who also argued with an instructor and had an attitude problem. So we went over and we sat on the wall of shame, which is really like, this is the first point in Buds where I was like, I'm a failure. Like a I'm, I'm, yeah, right. Like, you, you, like yeah. you've been through there. You know what the, oh, yeah. the feelings like, and Fucking so horrible. you're like, and the class is moving on, and no one cares about you anymore. And you're just like, what the what the hell just happened, man? Like, yeah. how did I not even really see this coming? Like, it just kind of snuck up on me. I thought everything was going decent, you know, yeah. and tight, and so so that happened, and uh, that resulted in kind of some funny stories because uh, if you remember, Jason Lamb was our oh, yeah. our. Uh, LT, our, our lieutenant there. And I remember talking to Jason. I remember talking to the, the PTRR instructors and, and they said, you know what? You like you failed pool comp. They had those balsa wood tanks. And he said, take those tanks and just go practice with them. And so I did because that everybody in that class for that phase was done using those tanks for any reason. So I took them to my room and uh, Brody Renner can attest to this because uh, Brody and I were roommates and, and a, a couple of times we pulled those tanks out and kind of ran through because Brody hadn't gone through pool comp yet. So I was kind of showing him like, here's, here's what, you know, like they do, here's the process. Like, here's how, and meanwhile I was going through and doing, uh, I was rolled back to PTR and, and I, I was going through that, you know, going to the pool and practicing that. So I, I became insanely confident in the water and it just, there was nothing you could do to phase me. And I, and I could work through anything, which is really good because I ended up going to an SDV team, which yeah. was a whole nother deal. But Brody and I were, uh, on our first room inspection when we classed back up with uh two fifteen, and instructor Volpe came in and they were like, Hey, your guys room looks really good. And they're thumbing through my closet and they see those balsa wood tanks in there. And they were like, thief <laughs> so so i mean i went from having the attitude problem and when when I, f I forget his name but like he and i we had got rolled out together and because we're the attitude boys like the next day they had that wheel of woe yeah. right where they spin and you like get 15 minutes in the ice tank you get like do 808 count bodybuilders you yeah. get just kept spinning they did that for a whole day because we're the attitude twins oh, and we went into this not like not like i went in on my own and then he went in on his own like for our like our our disciplinary disciplinary review board or whatever it was called where we, where we got <laughs> the whole deal. Right. Yeah. It wasn't, I think, uh, I think Bablick was the, uh, the proctor of that class yeah. or uh, yeah. yeah the first class. Yeah. yeah. And so, and so he said, you know, like on your deficiency chit, like just don't write a bunch of excuses. Yeah. So I didn't, I literally, I wrote, you know, I effed up. Right. <laughs> like <laughs> that I was, that, that, and then I signed it. That was yeah. it. But I go into this, uh, I go into this meeting and the, and the, like the CEOs there and like all these, you know, in uniform, like big, you know, all these medals. I, I think that they're war heroes or something, yeah. you know, and the big 
golden trident on there. Yeah. And here I am, this douchebag sitting there with another guy who really, I feel like he was drawing fire more than I was, yeah. but we both got lumped in together as the attitude the twins. Bag twins. And I'm not kidding you, man. Like it, the heat was on us. And they basically were like, you are the reason that my, my buddies died face down oh, in the blood and the, the blood and the mud. And I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, I'm a boy from Montana. I can yeah. shoot antelope. I don't even know what's going yeah. on, you know? I, you know, so all that happened. And then the bad thing is, like, when we classed up and they found those tanks, then we had, I think, Senior Chief Cunningham was, like, the the chief of that phase yeah. coming back into it. He calls me in the office, and he's like, listen, man, like, you're a shitbag, and you need to go. <laughs> like, so I got, again, on the grinder, all the officers of the new class that I just just classed up with had to basically take a beating for a day with me and them together. And like, so now all the officers of the class I just rolled into are not too fond of me either. Yeah. And it was all stuff that was just like, kind of, I mean, I say it's kind of innocent, right? Like, <laughs> like I, I literally had asked for permission to use that thing. And, yeah. and then I just forgot that it was in my closet. Yeah. So, I mean, it was, it was a long, crazy story. And, and what ended up happening is the same instructor that saw it and literally he, told me that he was going to make it his personal like agenda to get me rooted out but it's like and i swore that he was going to do it which instructor was it volpe Volpe. so yeah thanks thanks brother but (laughs) (laughs) but but to fast forward like i class up with you know the next class and like we get ready to do a pool comp and now now you've got you you have two chances mm-hmm. as as the guy coming back having failed everybody else has four the first time now you class back up you only have two chances it was me drum and board and the other guy who got shit canned and i was we had a big class you know that was a big class to roll into but i i got in the front of the line and uh i was like here we go and like i said i was really confident because i'd spent a lot of time really focused on just that with the tanks you stole yeah exactly <laughs> exactly so who's the instructor but is in the first lane instructor volpe yeah and and uh he's like all right who's first and i'm like well clearly i am and so let's <laughs> let's let's roll let's, let's do dance this mother so yeah. i think that they're not supposed to keep you down for more than like 15 minutes yeah i was down for 45 minutes god damn 45 minutes and he gave me everything but you know what's crazy it was like I felt like I was down there for five minutes. Yeah. Like I was that confident and that smooth by that point where, I mean, he just kept hitting me, kept giving me multiple <laughs> whammy knots. Every time I'd figure something out, he'd just come down and mess with me. And so I do think he was really gunning for me. Oh yeah. Uh, but I came up and at that point they had already run most of the class through and everybody else had failed their first round. And, and the, the line was pretty short of like people who hadn't failed yet, who hadn't gone. I mean, like there was only a couple people that hadn't gotten in the pool yet. So I was underwater. Well, they all had gone in, fail, fail, fail. And, and I'm still underwater just getting the beat out of me. And, but I come up and Volpe looks at me and with no, like no animosity or he was just like, Hey, great job. Like you did really, really good. You still failed. And he goes, that'd be normal. And so he goes, he goes, pass. And I was the first guy. So the, whoever was sitting on the chair at that point was like, finally, finally somebody passes, you know? Yeah. Like, so I was the first guy to pass. So it was a pretty good feeling. And then, oh, and then, uh, yeah. So, so it was a good, it was a good turnaround story. And, you know, we both had, 
yeah, the attitude twins had the opportunity of like how, how we were going to play that, how you handled yourself. And, uh, yeah. that guy actually got in a fight with, uh, Osman. You remember Osman oh, was fine. like yeah. kind of running that PTR yeah. circle. And they literally got in a fist fight and oh, Osman shit. was like tight with the instructors. That was another reason that dude didn't make it. Yeah. But I, I went in there like first day of PTR and I was like all these instructors who I thought I knew probably hated me for, for being an attitude twin and all these other things kept coming at me. Yeah. And I, and I, and I was like, I volunteered for everything. And I, and I showed up in the middle of their lunch meeting when somebody had to redo their water tank, you know, bring in the Colgan oh, big yeah. water bottle. Water and I was boy. like, I'm the water boy. And I came in with a smile and they're sitting there watching Jerry Springer and joking <laughs> and wanting to harass people. And I just came in every day with a smile and I'm like, that's what you're going to see from me every day, yeah. no matter what. Yeah. No, I, I mean, to me, like that's, that's the essence of uh, of the attitude you got to fucking bring to life, you know. Is that uh, like I said earlier, you know, we're all the the sum of all of our choices wherever you're at in life, and and uh, you know, everybody gets handed a shit sandwich. Everybody has has problems. Everybody gets dealt cards that fucking suck sometimes. And and uh, you know how you respond to that uh, and the attitude that you bring into that is is what separates the outcome. You know, yeah. I mean, most of the time, of course, there's exceptions where no matter how good your attitude is it still sucks but even then still like okay well now what well keep keep a good attitude like that's all you have you know so it's to me that like i I think that to to display the essence of or what encompasses the mentality of of a seal uh in my opinion is is very much that that exact thing you know so it's uh it's actually a great great story and good life lesson kids so for all you kids that aren't listening right now uh yeah should fucking work every t- show up to work every day with that smile and yeah. uh, fake it till it. you make it. Yeah, no shit. <laughs> All right, so you uh, so you roll into two fifteen. I ended up rolling out of two fourteen at uh, literally a week before we went to San Clemente Island, and then so you and I joined back up in, in two fifteen. We graduate together, and then I stayed on the West Coast. Went to Team Three. You went to uh, SDV Team Two, which sealed delivery vehicle, the little black mini submarines uh, out in Little Creek. What? Uh, Give us a quick synopsis of what what that was like being at uh, at STV two. Yeah, it was really funny because on the wish list I asked for you know I, p- I picked a coast. I thought that at least helped me get to the coast I wanted. So I picked two, four, and eight. Right, clearly. And uh, remember uh, our proctor that phase was Phil Ryan. Oh yeah. <laughs> and Ryan's like Mayhew, congratulations, you got Seal Team two, as in STV <laughs> Team two. <laughs> <laughs> And I was so mad. Like, yeah. I was so upset. Like, I just, uh, I, I didn't know what it was, yeah. but I was so upset. Like, yeah. I, I was like, I'm not going to be a real seal. Or what? <laughs> <laughs> so I went there and I ended up uh, being a pilot right away. And, you know, Jeff Samuel was in my, in our class, yeah. but he also, mm-hmm. you know, he and I did a couple platoons together, but we both, we both ended up, I, I legitimately, I would, I'll give Jeff props. I think he was a, a better pilot than I was, yeah. but he wasn't there the day that we were choosing the primary pilot. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so he was off at some school. Yeah. Uh, so I ended up being the prime primary pilot and, uh, for that first platoon. And so I just got, I just logged so many hours and, and it was the most opposite <laughs> thing from a, for a kid coming from Montana. It was like, so, but it was really cool that, I had gone through all of that extra time underwater to really become so confident. And I think that that, 
there was definitely times where that came into play where I was in hairy situations with a nuclear submarine that's going 11 knots when it's supposed to be coasting at one knot and you're coming in for that yeah. rendezvous and all of these things. And so you're getting towed out at sea and, and just being able to stop, slow down, think and, and not freak out, but do the thing that you got to do to, to find air again and, and, and work that out. So yeah. One one thing, uh, if you could kind of, you know, because the, the sealed delivery vehicles, these little, for the listeners that are, yeah. are unaware, they're these little black mini submarines, like, and I've not had a, I've had a number of sealed guests on the, on the show, but none that, that uh, especially were pilots of, of these things. Can you kind of just give a quick uh, synopsis of, of what an SDV is and kind of sure. like, you know, the lockout operations, like just kind of a, a general, you know, elevator pitch, if you sure, will, for, you uh, for the SDVs? Well, it's a, it's a battery powered submarine and I think they took like a forklift motor and stuck it in the back and put a prop on it. And when we first, what, what, you know, when I first got to the, the training and, and then the team, we, we literally had a computer that looked like the, the asteroids page, right. Of the, yeah. the old computer game where you had like, you had like a little triangle and then you had a dot here and a dot there. You had like point A and point B and a triangle that was going somewhere in between there, right? Yeah. Like you really didn't have a lot of navigational aids at that point. And, but that's what, that's what we learned on. And, and so it was about 20, I forget, like 24 feet long or something like that. And four and a half feet wide, five feet tall, whatever, something like that. And we had we had a pilot and a navigator that sit up front and it just has these, these canopies that you can open and close. And so it's, it's full of water on the inside and you're wearing full scuba or Uba gear, some kind of, um, some sort of full AGA face mask. And there's, there's microphones in there. So in theory, you're supposed to be able to have communications, but it seemed like, especially back then, it seemed like as soon as you go underwater, everything that worked above water stopped working when you went underwater. And so you, you lose comms immediately. So you you put your, you're like, it's not gay, but I'm going to put my hand on your knee and help you like navigate. (laughs) I'm going to tell you go left, right. Cause I can't use words and stuff. And so, you know, we, we used to do those things all the time. And yeah, again, Jeff Samuel, uh, hope you never listen to this, but don't, don't ever have him on your podcast so he can re, re, rebuttal my, my story. But he, uh, he and I used to just get into it all the time because yeah. you're already aggravated when you're down there and there's a lot of things going on. It's literally like you're flying a kind of like an airplane. You have this, this Joey stick, if you will, this, this stick and you move it left or right and up and down and, and, uh, but you're in the water. So as you, if you're going up and down, like clearly you're trying to clear your ears and the, cause you're, you're diving. And yeah. so those things we break all the dive rules, it's, it's totally not good for <laughs> your health, but like Jeff and I would be down there and, you know, we'd not communicate very well. And so we'd get aggravated and he'd, you know, reach over and grab my mask off while I, <laughs> while I was driving. Right. And it was hard enough looking at this stupid asteroids page. And, and then I got him messing with Fucking me. So I'm, I'm, I'm punching and like, we're, you know, it's, it's very tight quarters. And then we'd pack all of our gear in there in the back, we could put four people. And so that's kind of, usually those people as, as our missions ended up being a lot of those ended up being kind of the RNS guys doing yeah. the reconnaissance Recon- right. and surveillance guys. And so we would launch them out of the back, which, makes it into a really cool platform because you can take this miniature submarine, you can launch it, you know, 25 plus miles, however, you know, far away from long, long, long ways away from, uh, a port or, uh, you know, land anywhere. And you can, you can launch it out in the middle of the ocean. You can send this mini sub in 
literally into just a couple feet of water and guys can pop out and you know it's like the seal commercial right where the you see the yeah you see the uh, footprints in the sand and a wave yeah. comes up and those prints yeah. are gone like that's kind of you guys are the that, pamphlet that, that was it man like we <laughs> everybody all the rest of the seals made fun of us because they're out kicking doors and doing you know that stuff which is cool uh, but but as far as a clandestine um, maritime maritime platform, platform yeah. i mean that's really kind of what the seals were all about yeah. for for so many years until we ended up in these wars where we kind of just accepted the job of being door kickers again i mean yeah. and focusing more on that but it was really cool and and it was something that such a small percentage of seals yeah. get to do let alone people in the navy yeah. and so i was I look back on it more fondly now than I probably did while I was there. Sure. Uh, and then my second platoon, I was really lucky between platoons because I came back and I ended up getting kind of the big three. I got um, comm school, sniper school, and free fall school. Yeah. And so I went and I did my second platoon there as a uh, as a as a sniper working out of the back of the boat, yeah. which was good and bad. It was bad because. I didn't think that the guys driving the boat were doing a good job. So I was always pissed. I was like, <laughs> I can do this whole thing. Just get out. Yeah. Let me drive it. Let me launch myself onto land and do the whole mission. And then, you know, I was cocky. So, so there Fucking was that Rambo over here. Yeah. And then, and then, <laughs> yeah. So that's, uh, I don't know. I could probably talk for a long time about SCV but stuff. I guess one of the things that, that I shit, I'm curious about it is, you know, from a, when you lock out of a submarine, like to me, that's, that's fascinating is you got a fucking submarine, with a mini submarine on it in yeah. it, you know, with a, with a half a dozen fucking team guys that like, yeah, like you said, you know, you're out in the middle of the ocean and, and these guys load up into this thing, flood the fucking chamber, you know, bubble out of the fucking, out of a submarine <laughs> and then, and then, and then travel. Can you talk capacity wise, capability wise, like how far, what, what, the, what's the fucking range? I don't, I don't even know what the fuck it is. That's something you can even say. I, you know, I probably could because I'm sure it's, it, it, it does sure more now fun. than it did. You know, I mean, clearly this was uh, 15 years ago. And so, yeah, I mean, we would commonly, like, I, I would say, you know, we, we could go more than 25 miles, right? Yeah. And, and, and we could probably go more than, you know, eight knots yeah. in there. And so when you put those in there and you're like, man, like if you're cruising at eight knots and, and, and yeah. you're out there in the in the big chop of the ocean, and and you kind of have to maintain that that depth in which a diver can can maintain for a long time, depending on what kind of platform you're breathing off of. Yeah. But I did a 12 hour dive God damn. In, down in Puerto Rico, just doing some training where we we launched. I think when the right after the sun went down, mm -hmm. and I dove all night and and I launched some guys out of the back to do stuff. And I, I got out and augered in and we, we did some just training stuff, but we went out to some other islands and, and I uh, hit some stuff on these islands and came back all, all in a, and literally I think that 12 hours was the maximum time you could dive yeah. as long as you're staying above a certain depth. And, and yeah. then that was the Navy's dive limits, which were, which were more lax than like a regular dive limits just yeah. because we were in such good shape. We can yeah. handle more. And you guys are in the military. So who gives a fuck? Yeah, exactly. We're expendable, <laughs> right? Totally expendable. And yeah. so we did that and I came back and I mean, the sun was up, right? Like yeah. they actually had to, I think, call the dive and I had to motor the rest of the way in on the surface, <laughs> you know, like, but, but the sun, sun down to sun up, like underwater yeah. that whole time you get out and you're, it, you're wearing a wetsuit, right? Yeah. So like you, your skin is like a thousand times more soft and sensitive. You touch it with a pen and you slice probably through your finger. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that we, that's 
a lot that's why a lot of guys didn't want to do it right yeah, yeah no yeah <laughs> not, not, not only that but like it was cold like yeah there we definitely did a lot of dives where guys were we had to quit the dives because guys were just getting cold and even on the submarine like you would have this dry dock shelter system so you have this this big garage that sits on top of the submarine and when you're underwater they fill that they fill that whole thing up and you're just watching the water come up you're coming up and you're like oh it's not that bad it's not that bad and then they have to they have to compress so that you actually get to the same the same depth, depth. Yeah. and so when you're like okay well we're at 30 feet all of a sudden when they compress your wetsuit gets compressed and you go from being like, oh, the water is not even really in my wetsuit yet. All of a sudden, it's just like it compresses, <laughs> well, and you're like, oh, that's cold. Like that's really cold. And you're like, yeah. seeing how quickly you can fill up your wetsuit with piss, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, but that's, I mean, that's uh, some of the guys I think on the on the West Coast, based out of Hawaii, they were able to use some. Um, they were able to use dry suits, mm. and we really didn't because if you got a tear in your dry suit, like oh, game over, man. Yeah. Like so, instead we just get these really, <laughs> really like nine mil wetsuits. You know, yeah. you couldn't move in, yeah. and uh, you know, and the technology was coming along too in those. I mean, you started getting those merino wool, and you know, what all yeah. the different things that were coming along, making you be able to use a five mil wetsuit like a nine mil would have been before. So, yeah. you know technology right yeah you know i don't know why i just fucking thought of this but like <laughs> i mean of all the years i spent in the fucking water freezing my balls off but what about wearing like a uh like both like basically a, a track suit underneath a thick ass wetsuit that actually keeps your skin dry but is protected by an outside fucking wetsuit like did you guys ever try that but like do you remember, uh, were, you, were you around when the, the Pepsi system, like yeah. the, that seven-layer fucking cold weather, you're like the lightest layer was still, or whatever. I mean, you could use fucking, you know, Helly Hansen, you know, rain gear or whatever, but like to have like just a, a thin, you know, in, impenetrable, you know, from a water standpoint, a waterproof like bodysuit that's real thin that just keeps your skin fucking dry. And then th like... I did not have that luxury. Did I just did I just invent <laughs> something? Like, you, you, did you ever think yeah. of that though? Oh yeah, I thought of everything, and I don't know why I didn't do more uh, to try and actually make them come to yeah, fruition because like, might have made money. But yeah, no, I mean, we we just uh, we had what we had, and you know, just moved forward. And so yeah. uh, you know, it's been really cool to see a lot of the technologies change for the gear that we used to use. I mean, when we showed up to Buds, they were giving us like camis from no, world war ii and and help i mean yeah. it was like canteens everything we had was like vietnam era stuff oh, I know. from the know? greens to the helmets and, to everything and but. nowadays it's a completely different battlefield and the yeah. gear is different and the scopes are different the long range capabilities are different it, like everything is just so much better yeah no i know it's good shit um yeah the sdv thing is is a fascinating platform it's fucking cool uh, we could talk all day about it yeah. but uh all right, so you do a couple deployments. Um, you get out in 2006. So you spent just a little over a decade in. And then from 06 until 2015, you know, you did, uh, unfortunately, there's a lot we can't talk about in terms of your government security contractor, Intel professional, but I'm sure for the listener uh, listening, you can read between the lines and, and know what that is. But uh, um, did a number of years of doing that uh, all over the place. Um doing the the kind of mobile security gig and then uh you did do a brief stint uh, on a political campaign that was the uh, zinkies right it was yeah can can you uh, give us a quick uh, quick rundown on that i don't really know him that well uh, yeah but i didn't really know him that well either it was really funny because uh you know he's he's a native to whitefish montana yeah. when i came in the navy 
I had a few people that had said, Hey, you should talk to this guy, Ryan Zinke. Cause he's, you know, he's, he's in the Navy and he's a Navy SEAL. And he was the only other guy that I knew of from the area who yeah. was a SEAL. Um, but our paths never crossed. And, and, uh, you know, I think he's probably about 13 years ahead of me. Yeah. Uh, he went and played for the Oregon ducks and then went in as an officer. And so by that point still, he, he'd been in the Navy for a, a while and, you know, my whole 10 years in the Navy, like our paths never crossed until, and I don't know if we should even go into this story, but the, when I, when I end up getting a, uh, captain's mask <laughs> at the, at, at the end of my 10 years there for sinking a, a, a Navy vessel, you got to tell that fucking story. <laughs> You're not getting it, out of it just so happens that that boat was under Zinke's command. Oh, no shit. Yeah, but but the, the problem was... Is, so he wasn't the captain that fucking... No, man. Like he, so later, he's just like, man, if I would have known that was you, like, and all that, like, I would have just, you know, signed off and been like, no problem, boat. God no damn. problem. But because... because what, so what happened with you? You sank oh, a fucking man. boat. Yeah, so we'll jump into that because that's that was my my way out of the Navy. Yeah. I, I was already somewhat disgruntled uh, with, with the Navy. I'm, I... I loved the SEAL teams, and, and I think that if there was a few things different about how the, th the teams had been uh, managed, I probably would have stayed in until 30 years or mm -hmm. I got, or, or I just got kicked out because I loved it. I really did. I loved the guys. I loved the, the mission. I loved the job. But as it was, you know, uh, I, was, I actually had asked to go to, I had asked to go to uh, Bahrain as as kind of like, and I cleared it with like the master chief there. And I had all, you know, that was going to be the next um, station that I want to go to. And part of the reason for that was because as guys were starting to, to deploy out the door, you know, like if you were at, if you're at the group there, you, sometimes you could hop in and augment, you know, I was a comms guy, I was a sniper. So I was like, cool. Like maybe I can, maybe that's the way I can get in the fight. Right. Yeah. The, the best way. And instead my chief, I won't mention any names at the time, um, basically came to me and he was like, Hey, you've got orders to go down to Panama city beach, Florida, and you're going to be, you're going to, you're going to, you're going to work for this, uh, SDV research and development. I said, no man, like I've already done my time with SDVs. Like I want to be, you know, in the fight, like, let's go, let's go, let's go. And, um, he was like, no man, like you, you, you don't get the chance to like, this is the Navy, right? Like you don't get yeah. the chance to like Needs the Navy. pick what you want to do and this and that. So I was pretty, I was pretty upset about that. And I was just like, you know what? Like I'm a, uh, I went down there and I, I spent a couple of years and clearly Panama city is like, it's hard to keep your head on straight down there. So, I mean, I just had, had extra time and I was, you know, it was, it was like being on spring break nonstop. <laughs> so so I just kind of started to mentally transition myself out of the Navy. And the last year that I was there, uh, you know, we, across the board, every SEAL team, every, everywhere we go, we clearly take boats out on weekends and do run the motors, run the carbon out, do, yeah. do whatever our excuse is. Right. But we, you know, it's not a big deal to take boats out and do stuff. Yeah. And so down there in the entire uh, two and a half years I've been at that command, never at one, never at one point as a, as the, um, command that I was at within that command, had we had to check out with port control or do anything in that particular port is really small it was coast guard, um, run for the most part. Um, and we just, we did our own thing. We were the SDV guys and no one gave us any crap. And we, you know, it was just easy, super easy, super, no big deal. Well, I decided that we should go scuba diving and, and spearfishing on a Sunday. 
And it just so, and so I had like four or five guys that were like all into this and, and it just so happened that that day was also mother's day. (laughs) (laughs) And and, 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 I mean, I'm a single guy in Panama city. So like the thought never really crossed my mind that that was a bad day to, but as a bunch of the other guys were married uh, last minute, I had a bunch of guys back out. Yeah. There was one guy, Steve Weeks was like, Hey man, I'll go with you. Well, Steve had worked for the the schoolhouse training, you know, guys going through SDV school and, but he'd also left the Navy like the week before. So yeah. technically he's not in the Navy anymore, but he's, he's like, I'll go. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, so I ended up going out and this is my downfall as I chose to like, this was a good decision that I was going to take one of our boats out on a Sunday with just me, this was Steve. A yeah, yeah. Just me, Steve and his wife. Yeah. Also not in the Navy. Fucking <laughs> 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 running a tourist fucking Oh, scam. man. And so I just wanted to go scuba diving so bad, and yeah. I didn't see the problem with it. And so, oh, man. We, so we had made this trade because they had these, uh, these ACBs, like aluminum chambered boats, and they're the worst boats. So if, you know, if you're a congressman and you're the guy that allowed that to, then fuck you, know, you. You, you know, you earmark that in your bill for your community to, so we could pay $150,000 for this piece of crap boat, choke then yourself. yeah, go choke yourself because <laughs> like the boat that literally had two outboard motors on it, yeah. as soon as you took it out in any sea state, like it didn't, yeah. it was almost impossible Fucking to keep it. Boat. Yeah. Like it, it, it was the worst, but it, but it had this little cabin, you know, you know, on it. So, and supposedly they were calling it an unsinkable boat. Well, I, I, I beg to differ. <laughs> So they had the one that had the outboards on it and the schoolhouse had been experimenting with one that actually was a jet jet boat. And so it had a big diesel engine in it. So it has this big diesel engine cavity in the, in the back, in the, in the very back and, and, uh, and this jet, well, they didn't really like it. The schoolhouse didn't like it. So the R and D guys were like, well, we'll take it. But we, we fell under a different command. Like we fell under, um, basically coastal systems like CSS and they fell under the training command, which was at in Sandy in Coronado, which Zinke actually was in charge of. So that boat was technically owned by Ryan Zinke as he was the CEO of that command. Yeah, that's priceless. Yeah. And, and, but I didn't know that at the time. All I knew is I had taken this boat out and we went through the jetty and I'm like, eh, you know, so it's, it's, uh, <laughs> But I think it's I think it's gonna die down. And we got through there, and it was it was a little bit died down. So we get out there, and and uh, because there was only really two of us that were gonna be able to dive, um, we couldn't let his wife drive the boat. We were both diving, so I gave him the spear gun. He goes down, comes up. He shot a grouper and a snapper and whatever. And there's three army like tanks down there, like ten miles off the coast. And so there's nothing else on the bottom of the ocean out there in the, in the Gulf. And so like we go out, we find those, those big tanks and we, uh, like literally like, you know, combat running tanks. Right. So, yeah. um, we go down and he, he comes up and I was like, you know, there's like, there's a little bit of water coming in the boat, but there's only like, it's really only like a two, three foot sea state. You wouldn't think that's a big deal. I didn't think it was a big deal until, until it turns out that this boat, this boat, has a bilge pump which sits midship <laughs> and it turns out that when water starts to get in this boat like it starts to go in the back yeah. and so this big engine cavity starts to get water in it 
and this boat oh, goes like this. And then the next thing you know, <laughs> I'm, it's like I, the fucking Titanic with the nose I, straight up in the air. Now, now, granted, like I'm not on the boat when this happened, yeah, because. Steve like goes down, shoots a couple of fish. We trade out. Like I, I go, I go down, I go down the, you know, we've got the buoy in the water, the line, the anchor, the whole deal. I go down. I'm like, Oh cool. Like I'm like that jackass shot every fish that was down here. Like I'm swimming from t- these, between these three tanks. I'm like, there's nothing there. I'm underwater for like 16 minutes and I, and I come up and I don't, I come up right next to the buoy and I don't see a boat. Holy fuck. <laughs> that's what i said right so like i'm like you, got left. Uh, you know there's only like two three foot sea state so like i hold my spear up as you do in in the in the air and i'm like i'm like hey i'm over here you know because maybe i can't see the boat but they should be able to see where i'm at and i'm like get over here well i don't see the boat i don't see the boat and my mind is blocking out the fact that i am seeing some shiny thing like about 100 yards off in the distance like every once in a while i see like this this silver glimmer which turns out was the boat upside down. Holy fuck. And, and then like a couple minutes later, Steve yells at me and he's like, Hey man, um, we're over here. <laughs> I'm like, and I'm like, I see two people bobbing in the water. I'm like, who are these people? And why, where's their boat? And, and then I'm like, wait a minute. Like what the hell? And then I'm like, and Steve's like, Hey, we're over here. And I'm like, and he goes, the next words out of his mouth were like, the boat's gone, man, the boat's gone. And I'm like, Steve also was like a 10 year season boat driver, SDV guy out of Hawaii. Like, you know, I full confidence in this guy. And, and what had happened, I guess, is it started taking on water and it started to, to dip down like that. And so he's like, cool. Like, we'll just do what we always do. We will just get it up on plane and wash all the, all the water out the back and, and keep the bilge pump on. Well, I don't think that water ever hit the bilge pump. And then when he went to go and, and fire it up and get on plane, all that water surged to the back and that water that was in that engine cavity sw- sloshed around water got into, it's a diesel motor and it, it sucked water in the intake, got water in these rods and it's like bends a rod and the whole engine seizes up. Holy fuck. So now your engine seized up. You're just sitting there as it's taking more and more water on and you can't get. So he said that the boat went completely vertical and they like dove off the bow. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's like, did he, did he get on the fucking, he did get on the, on the nose with the the Celine Dion playing and reenact fucking Titanic with his old lady or what? So, so he ends up up sending out an SOS. And the funny thing is his wife was like, I think you should do something about this. Like for a while. And he was like, no, we're good. Like we're freaking, everything's gonna be fine. Like I've done this a hundred times. I'm Nick, the host of the UFO Chronicles podcast with first-hand witnessed accounts of the strange and unexplained, covering UFOs, cryptids, conspiracies, and the paranormal. Real people, real encounters. So come with us on the journey into the unknown. UFO Chronicles podcast is available to listen to on all apps. I'll see you soon. And then it didn't work out well. And so... Uh, but it turns out there's a law back in the seventies that the, the, the feds, uh, the Congress passed saying that if a boat sank or if a boat, um, capsized, it couldn't sink. It had to have enough flotation where at least a percentage of the hull had to be like out of the water. Yeah. So swimmers, I guess, or people could go back and like have something to hang on to or whatever. So that's, you know, that's how I found that out. And, <laughs> and, uh, so the, the boat's floating away. So at once we kind of regather up, we swim over to this boat and we're sitting there and, and 
he had called the SOS to the Coast Guard. And so we're sitting out there and we've got, it's a ridiculous story, but, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I decided I'm like, well, my phone and my wallet are in there. Like this thing's about to go down. Yeah. I, I figured it was about to sink to the bottom. So I, I swam in there to get that stuff and he was all freaking out. Cause he thought it was going to go down too. We didn't know it's just yeah. float, floating <laughs> along. And then we waited for probably at least an hour and a half, almost two hours out the there. Water temp. Oh, it's, Panama city beach. So it was like 75 degrees. So, I mean, the water was fine. Both of us had, uh, like very, very thin, um, maybe like three mil wetsuits on and neither one of us, I think had anything underneath our wetsuits. And so at one point, his wife who didn't have a wetsuit on was like, I'm cold. And so (laughs) I'm like, brother, that's your wife. (laughs) (laughs) Like you take, you're going to need to, you need to get, you're going to have to wear her sun shorts (laughs) (laughs) and she's going to have to wear your, wear your wetsuit. And I'm not like, you know, I'm not not part of this. And so, and so as we see a ship going by, uh, Steve proceeds to get on to the top of the, uh, the boat and do the helicopter. <laughs> I'm not going to get into that if you don't know what I'm talking about, no, but Steve's out it. there, Steve's out there doing the helicopter. Well, later that night, this was on the news and I don't know if that was on the news, but you know, those big ships have like zoom cameras where yeah. they can zoom on some stuff. And then, the, and then eventually shortly after that, the coast guard showed up and they had no idea who, who we were. I mean, we literally launched every day on the same boat ramp as them. Yeah. And, uh, and so we, we, they come and pick us up and Steve's wearing his wife's running shorts and, uh, <laughs> and, 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 uh, we get up there and they're like, you guys all right? And we're like, yeah, cool. And, uh, they're like, we're talking to them and, and, and they go, well, they go, oh, wow. Like you, you're the SDV guys. <laughs> <laughs> no, so, no, that's not oh us. Oh my gosh. No, so <laughs> we ended up having Cito. Cito came out and Cito's towing it, towing this boat in and, it it took them 12 hours because it was like 10 miles out there, but they could only go like a knot and yeah. pull on a boat that's upside down with a, a whole Christ. cabin on it. Yeah. And so, you know, I get back in and, you know, I, I ended up talking to some of the senior SEALs that were part of that, you know, that base. And there was a couple different commands and some experimental dive units and, and, and everybody was on my side and they, and they were just like, yeah, like, they're like, what happened? Did you forget to put the drain plug in? I'm like, no, nah, I'm pretty sure. Like I got that. <laughs> you know, I'm pretty sure that's, that that's, that's not the reason. I'm like, I think it's just a shitty boat. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, these guys were, they were kind of in my court, but the CEO of the base was not a frogman, and he did not like frogman, yeah. and he wanted to burn frogman to the ground. Yeah. <laughs> so like, so it was bad. Like, I don't know if, you know, some team guy had hooked up with his wife before that. I don't know what it was, <laughs> but he wanted to make an example and he was about to retire anyways, yeah. but it was crazy to me that he's going to take a guy with my, my record at that point was pretty flawless. I had nothing but good reviews and, and, uh, everything. And, and then this was the first thing in really like a 10 year career that was going on my, going on my, my record. And, and he wanted to take me to a court martial. Jesus. Fuck. And that's kind of the point where I was like, I'm so done with the Navy, like yeah. suck it. I'm out, yeah. you know? And then his XO is a really cool guy, you know, but I ended up going to caps mask and, uh, and I, I ended up, you know, going through that, that whole process. And, and it, I've never seen, I've never been around other captain's masks, but I, I literally had like three 
master chiefs in there yeah. all stand up and say something on my behalf as well as a uh, a, a warrant officer who's a team guy and and the xo and like i i mean i felt very honored but i was just i was still young and still really cocky and like i was still just like f you like i would prefer you do a court martial because then i'm gonna go to fox news and tell everybody <laughs> how dumb the navy is you know yeah. and it's really it's really sad that like that's that's where things were and that's where i i made my exit yeah. but i mean it was a good story for like <laughs> um but uh, yeah so i i didn't sink a boat but i we, i was responsible sure and, and 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 nobody could know really about steve and his wife being on there because yeah. steve had just taken a job with blackwater and he yeah. was super freaked out about it yeah. like losing his job that he just got which is a big paycheck yeah. and so i was like I basically just took this whole hit as if it was just me out there, you know, like taking one for the team. It it was ridiculous. Like it was the dumbest thing. And and later I would see Zinke in like downtown whitefish and he, he just laughs about it. He thinks it's the funniest story. And, uh, but I did, I ended up working for him for about, about a year. I think in February I left Baghdad from the job I was working at. I was my 15th, uh, 15th trip to Iraq and I and he came back and I told him if he was serious about running, I would I would help him on his campaign. Didn't know what that meant. Didn't know anything about politics. And uh, he said, "Okay, you're going to be a regional director of something." And I said, "I don't know what that means." He said, "You'll figure it out." And, <laughs> and like I did. Dead, huh? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what is it, guys from Montana? <laughs> yeah, you figure yeah. it out. So, yeah. be all right. so <clears throat> basically, the 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 western half of the state, I kind of I kind of maintained that in our campaign and it was a grassroots deal. So I got out there and I told him, I said, you know, the two things I don't want to do is I don't want to give any speeches and I don't want to make any phone calls. Yeah. Cause I figured he's like, well, he that's goes, what I, I need oh, to make speeches. Oh, and, and I, and I told him I needed money to like pay my mortgage. <laughs> and he said, well, how much do you need? And I said, uh, really, I, I, I have about a five grand outgoing a month yeah. at that time, which was actually not that bad. And he's like, ah, no problem. It should be totally fine. And then as soon as I got there, this little rascal of a campaign manager is like, well, here's what we're going to do. We're going to give you thousand dollars the first couple of months. And I'm like, that's not at all what we had agreed upon. Yeah. Um, but I don't care. I'm going to do it because it's for a greater cause. And I realized, you know, you got to work in this yeah. stuff. So did that and I learned a lot and I really enjoyed working with, uh, commander Zinke at, at the time he was, uh, he'd been a state Senator briefly and then, and then uh, was running for U.S. Congress, and I was able to travel with him quite a lot and just kind of see the way that he lived his life. Because to be quite honest with you, the time while I was working for um, the other government group that we don't mention, there's a lot of guys from our background that are kind of in, in that mix, yeah. and we're all pretty similar, I think, on like our our conservative views, but also kind of being pretty libertarian, you know, kind of just like, we don't want the government messing with us, but we also, we also kind of are stocking guns and food because we are like, yeah. this, this shit's got to crumble. So I was prepared for the worst and I was kind of like, I had my place in Montana out off the grid and I was, and, and I had that kind of whole mindset where I was kind of going down a somewhat negative path, I think. Yeah. And, and spending the time with, uh, Zinke was good in the sense that, you know, he would always say, you know, what man breaks, man can fix and, and that, you know, it's fixable. And so 
I kind of just started saying, you know what, like you have to try, like it might not be fixable, but we have to try like good men need to stand up and do the right thing. Otherwise it's definitely not fixable. And I think that's the one thing I saw in politics was, you know, we've lost the veterans, you know, at one point, not that long ago, 80% of Congress people had been veterans. Yeah. You know what it is now? It's like fucking less than 5%, isn't it? No, I think it's like 12% or something. Yeah. It's super, super low. But I think that's also directly proportionate with, it correlates to some of the the problems that we have. And you have people who are just so far left or so far right, and they refuse to talk and meet in the middle. And they're either red or they're blue, but they're not red, white, and blue. They don't put country first. And that's the good thing about veterans is, you know, we typically are like, I don't really care about your political views that much. Like let's, let's put country first. And, and, uh, so it was really good for me to work with Ryan and, and see his tenacity and see how, how hard he worked and how, I mean, I thought I had a good work ethic and and that guy was just running me in the ground. And so I was like, you know what? I I can do more. And there, there's purposeful things out there. Um, but when he, he actually wanted me to go to DC with him. I said, well, I'm, I'll, I'll, I only go so far, right? Like yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't want to lose my soul, uh, you know? <laughs> so like I'm, I'm, I ends here. And that's when I started with deliver fun yeah. and we, and we kicked that off. So, uh, just before we get into that real quick, two things that I, I didn't realize is you did 15 fucking trips to Iraq. I did. God and, damn. And they were shorter trips. I think the shortest one was probably a month and a half, but still, I mean, that's uh, a fucking, that's I went a, back two more times with an, with a nonprofit just kind of run it. Cause I, I knew the country pretty well at that point. Yeah, so I, I'd been everywhere from, you know, Basra to Ramadi to everywhere in Kurdistan. Kurdistan was actually not that bad, you know, like, uh, um, some of these places that are, uh, people, people don't realize what that landscape looks like, yeah, but it's, it's totally different. Totally different. Yeah. yeah. Any, any close calls or anything you can share from your time, uh, time there? Or? Yeah, we certainly had a variety of close calls. I mean, when I, when I went down to, uh, Ramadi, this was in 2009, probably the, the end of 2009. So, you know, I, I'd probably missed a lot of the, a lot of the action, but we were, we our our base was kind of right there jointly with, uh, a, a, a SEAL team. And, and so we were like, I landed in country, took a black helicopter and flew down, down the river to, to this base and got checked in. My sleep schedule was still on Montana time. And so I'm laying there at, I think three or four in the morning and, uh, kind of wide awake and just got up in one of those little pods, you know, and I, and I, with like paper thin walls yeah. and, and I'd gone up I took a piss, came back, laid down. And literally when my head hit the pillow, there was just this massive explosion yeah. <laughs> and I was like, what did I do? Uh, <laughs> uh, my superpowers have kicked in. And so it just like rocked everything and like dust covered. I mean, you couldn't see open the door, but we had it. We had a building that was a hard building uh, on the river there. And so I, everybody kind of started running over there and see what's going on. You heard gunfire, cut, cut, cut. but they had, um, they had the, the, the high bridge and the low bridge about a thousand meters from there. And somebody had actually dr- been driving a dump truck full of like ammonium nitrate and clacked that thing off like halfway on a high bridge. And it blew out like two bridge stanchions. I mean, this is like a bridge that is fully, 
um, you know, they got rebar fully structured to haul, you know, heavy loads across and to be able to like blow that amount yeah. out is, is a big deal. It's not like it holding the firecracker in your hand. Like it, normally things blow in the opposite direction, but it blew that down that much to blew out like two stanchions of that bridge. So, I mean, it was, it was pretty massive. We were trying to figure out what was going on. And, and, and for us, it wasn't really, it wasn't really the unsafe part. I mean, yeah, there's people over there in a gunfight, but um, didn't really involve us. Although the next day on Al Jazeera, what do they say? They say that it was a Navy pilot that shot a missile at the bridge. <laughs> so that didn't do good for like our public relations. Yeah, no and, uh, so we're driving around the car, in, you know, in a car the next day and, and, uh, we were doing an AFAM along the river in this, this, uh, neighborhood called Sophia. And, uh, it was a rough, rough area. And at the time they had a lot of security issues. And so they were trying to get the, the army, the Iraqi army to like co-man checkpoints with, uh, the Iraqi police. And so they, they had a big feud of who actually was in charge and they were always fighting each other about that. And so one of our vehicles had run up on, on that checkpoint and the army guy was like, you're good to go. And the police guy said, no, no, no. And literally the wall next to there, there was about four, there was about 40 guys in man jammies and AKs who were just like goofing off, hanging around, waiting for something to happen. And I, I don't really know the whole, whole deal. I know that we had, we had video uh, footage of some of this, which is why we know that they were there and like things were getting out of hand. But some of those guys came out and there was a lot of just confusion. Mm-hmm. And we had the phone number to the the general there, the police general. And, and so our, uh, our interpreter, our linguist gets out there on his, on his you know, cell phone to call the police general. And as soon as he does that, they think that we're calling like for fire. They, they, they <laughs> yeah. because so, what had just happened like the night before, or it might've been a couple of days before, but it was really, really close. And these guys like that's, they thought that's what we were calling an airstrike on them. Yeah. And they all freaked out like immediately as soon as he started doing that. And, and we had another guy who was a prior army guy and he's standing out there and he's all bowed up in the middle of everything. And I, and I rolled in just as, um, somebody fired off an AK round and, this was at the time where if you saw somebody with an RPG, you could still shoot him. (laughs) And, uh, I like, you know, I saw this guy from the side. I'm like, I'm like, Oh my God, is that RPG? I'm like, I'm going to shoot somebody. And then like, like I, I was glancing. And as soon as I looked back, I I couldn't, I couldn't see it again. That guy kind of disappeared in a couple other people. So like, I'm looking, I'm trying to figure out what's going on. And we, we had three cars and, and we had three people in one car two and the other two of the other two. And so the, and the two guys that were up there, I mean, they were, they'd got drug out of their car and they're getting like the whole rundown and the people are trying to look in the trunk. And I mean, we got all kinds of stuff on us. And so it was, it was going bad real quick. And you know, the, you know how those situations are. I mean, it's mob mentality. And as soon as like oh, yeah. something goes bad, like it's just like, well, here we go again. And like, everybody's yeah. going to die. And this was one of multiple times where that kind of situation happened. Yeah. Um, but as it was, we ended up going back, we ended up getting an escort, a police escort back to the, back to the base. And then we, um, we, they told us to stand down for 30 days. So I think about 
two weeks later we started going back out, <laughs> you know, as yeah. is, yeah. you know, the deal. Yeah, so, sure. but it was, it was definitely like, that was a, that was a very hair raising experience. We had to call the QRF out. The, yeah. the MRAPs were actually coming out for yeah. us. They, they, they came out. And so, yeah. um, but the information that we got later about that checkpoint, I mean, the, the, the local imam said, next time those guys are coming through this neighborhood, you, you kill them, you throw your cars in the river. No, you know, like it's, it was that kind of deal. Yeah. So pretty unfriendly. Yeah. And, and that was at a time where every, not every day, but every week for sure, there was either a V bit or a, a motorcycle, you know, bomb going off and, yeah. or, or both. Cause they'd like to do the little one to get everybody over there and then do the big one. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know? That's some fucking dicey shit. No doubt about it. And I know, uh, like I said, I know most of it you can't talk about you, even though we could sit here for hours and talk about overseas fucking hair raising stories. But, uh, yeah, we'll uh, we'll save that for uh, for when you come back. But <laughs> all right, so uh, moving into you know kind of what you have going on now, and, and really the gist of of uh, what we'll continue to talk about is is uh, your nonprofit called Deliver Fund. Now you started this in uh, early 2015. Is that right? Yeah, I think that we actually got our nonprofit status uh, in October of 2014, and at that point. I had worked with a guy overseas, actually in Kirkuk, Iraq, on a few trips, uh, Nick McKinley, and just a phenomenal guy, brilliant, brilliant guy. Good kisser. Yeah, he was Air Force, so we, you know what you can do. He's got soft hands, too, <laughs> yeah, then. <he's>, exactly. <laughs> uh, Shout out to Nick. Love yeah, you, buddy. Never uh, met uh, you. But. Uh, there's Air Force. Um, so, yeah, he was a PJ prior to, you know, working, um, you know, working for some other stuff there and he ended up being a, a special agent for the CIA and, and he can say that because uh, he's kind of run his stuff through the publications review board and and so we we were able to it, he actually was able to get that nonprofit status which is kind of a pain in the butt when you're telling them what you're gonna about to do because they just think like you're carrying MP5s and wearing black pajamas and yeah. and roping through people's windows, you know. <laughs> and, and so, okay, but he had he had told me about this idea probably two years before that while we were sitting down at lunch in DC. And I at that point I just said, "Man, when when you're ready to pull the trigger on this, uh, I can't think of anything else that would take priority." So what, so that that idea conceptually at that time yeah. what what was that like Well it was different than it is today for sure Just so like everything right Like everything a lot of pivot a lot of adjust and shift left right So we we were talking about and this is based off some some uh you know he'd sit on the I think it was a hostage working group but for for the agency but you sit at this big table overseas where you've got the Department of Justice I mean you literally have the State Department and the CIA, you have the biggest, most powerful organizations in, in the world, and they couldn't do anything about two kids from North Carolina whose father was uh, uh, Pakistani and had taken the two kids and sold them the best that they could tell to the uncle. And, you know, it's not uncommon in that, that kind of a country, and but fucking savages <laughs> but the Sad. mother is uh you know sitting in north carolina and has really no recourse and and we as a government could not do anything to get those kids back yeah and it's something that we think about i mean we could go take care of that in an afternoon you yeah. know i mean it's easy uh but there was legal constraints etc cetera, etc cetera. so 
so as it turns out, you know, like we were thinking along the lines of like, you know what, let's, let's go. And there's, there are, there are kids who are straight up abducted. You know, that happens. It's not quite like taken, but <laughs> yeah. taken one, two or three. Uh, but you know, that, that happens. And we were kind of thinking along the lines of working internationally and going and recovering, uh, kids, uh, people who had been abducted and, and were sex trafficked out of the country and then make sure that they came back. Because at that point I didn't, I still didn't realize the epidemic that's, that is happening within the U S and I, I was at a meeting this morning with, uh, you know, the major from the, uh, Department of uh, Public Safety, DPS guys here in Texas. And, you know, he, he was making the comments about five years ago, you know, he had been working narcotics and he had no idea that the human trafficking side even existed or that it was a real thing. You know, now he runs that task force, I think, for this uh, North Texas region. And so, you know, it's it's been a it's been something that we've looked at in the United States is kind of like, well, this is a. Uh, just prostitution, right? Like mm -hmm. this is uh prostitution is the oldest business in the world, right? I mean, it's just prostitution and there's, there's uh women that are doing this by choice. Right. Mm -hmm. And so when you think about it like that, you're like, Oh yeah, that's, you know, doing them a favor, right? Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah, giving the girls some money for, yeah. for something. And, uh, and the reality of it is way different. And there, there's been a point in history where, there was more of that. Like you have the red light district and you had, you had pimps and prostitutes and, um, but, but really, you know, human trafficking is where they're, it's either force fraud or coercion. Right. Mm -hmm. And they're not allowed to keep their money. They're not allowed to, to make any of those decisions. And so there's lots of different ways that that could happen and be played out. But in the case with minors, it's automatically a human trafficking case because, they're not legally old enough to make a decision to, to be a prostitute. Like yeah. the law doesn't allow for that. And so all of that said, like we, we've seen this, this massive e epidemic to the point where here we are a few years into it and, and people don't believe this, uh, that it's this rampant, but pick a city and you know, we can build you within three hours, probably within three minutes, we'll identify a human trafficker, but within three hours, we'll build out the entire intelligence case. Yeah. And, and we can pass that to law enforcement. Uh, but what we've really found that was necessary is that we could put the best intelligence case uh, on the desk of law enforcement anywhere, but they're not really going to understand what that entails, how that intelligence was gathered, collected, or or what to you know what even to do with it. Yeah. And they get so many tips and so many leads, and 95% of it is all BS anyways. And so they end up just being overwhelmed by this amount of information coming in. So we, we realized that one of the things we needed to do to create kind of this centralized brain for all things human trafficking was make sure that we got law enforcement to be on the same technology platforms, mm -hmm. you know, get them the best technology platforms, as well as, you know, going through the training because just like you or I, yeah. if you give me a piece of technology, I'm going to set it, over, it. I'll, I'll either break it or set it over here in the corner and forget, forget I'll, about I'll it. either break it, try to fuck it or <laughs> set it on fire or lose it, you know? Uh, yeah. yeah. So we started running some 10 day counter human trafficking intelligence operations courses. And, and that's been really, really effective to the point where, uh, recently 
uh, I think it was about last April in Tarrant County, which is kind yeah. of like the, yeah, the right Fort, Fort Worth area yeah. in Texas. There was a newly elected sheriff who, great guy, and he just had was getting elected and didn't really have the resources to to put together anything to to fight human trafficking. Uh, so literally, we ended up paying for laptops. No oh, sure, <laughs> right? We we bought them laptops. We put all the software tools on there and ran a training for four of their officers. And since then, I mean, I saw them like seven months later, and they were all excited. They had they had arrested like six or seven uh, traffickers, oh, sure. which is just a massive, awesome scalability yeah. of of our effort and and money that we'd put into them, yeah. which is, you know, we equip, train and advise, and then we, we put them out there and, and it was so cool to see their success and see how well they were doing really without us having to do much follow up with them. Yeah. And then one of their cases actually in this, I mean, th- this is really what tears at my heart is uh, one of those cases involved a four year old child. God damn. So when you're talking about human trafficking in the United States, this is, uh, you know, they say 12 to 14 years old is the average age of kids that are brought into that. And so, you know, that's the average age, but there is, uh, there is young children who also are being, uh, exploited, taken advantage of molested, raped. I think the better term for human trafficking or sex trafficking in the United States is, is, uh, industrialized rape. Yeah. To me, it, uh, it it's hard to to even wrap my my fucking mind around um, the both the mentality of um, and and the capability of of people to to do shit like that, you know, to to other human beings uh, in in that uh, in that regard. Like it's just it, it I I can't even I, I can't fucking comprehend it. You know, I mean, it's, and I and I know most you know, the overwhelming majority of the population listening, um, you know, feels the same way about it, uh, other than the sick, twisted fucks that, uh, you know, that are on the other end of the fucking radar that, that we're trying to stop. But, um, you know, and that's why, why you're here and why we're going to go, go through a lot of the different uh, elements of, of what you do and how you do it. But, uh, but Jesus Christ, a four-year-old, I mean, it just, I mean, to me, it's it's absolutely mind-boggling, and it's. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I don't think criminal really is even even an appropriate, no. uh, you know, label for for what it is. It's it's far goddamn worse than that. But um, that it, that it, particular case was actually a paternal grandparent who was who who had been selling their kids and then getting their kids pregnant and basically creating a cycle in which they could. Um, they could get money for selling their kids and then their grandkids. And then, you know, just, it was a, it was a cycle like that. So that's the, that's another thing where a lot of, a lot of other countries have a very different culture. And so, I mean, you're going to have to win a culture war if you go to India. I mean, they don't have any money they don't value life the same way that we do. So they might sell their child. Fucking cow. They might, yeah, they, they might sell their own child for whatever, they don't care. They don't value life in the same, same way. And so like, that's a, that's a difficult culture war to win. But in the United States, uh, again, we're based, our value system has very much been based on a, you know, a a Judeo Christian, you know, value of life. And that's, Mm -hmm. that's where we've come from. That's who we are. We have a, 
you know, we believe in this, but there's this, there's this dark illicit thing happening on the side where again, it comes down to breakdown of families. It comes down to all of these things that tear apart our society and what the, the people that end up taking the toll are our children who are then, you know, our next generation. And then they end up doing the same thing. So what we end up seeing is there's actually a large percentage of these traffickers who are women, really, which kind of blows your mind at first. Cause you're like, yeah, a woman wouldn't do that to another woman or a child. Like, but the reality is some of these are parents doing it to their own children. You know, women who have a drug addiction are willing to sell their child, um, knowingly for sex. Um, but, but you also have, you also have these girls who are what you call like the bottom bitch, I guess is the term. And so they end up kind of being the, the, where they were the traffic victim, but they've sort of worked their way up in the ranks to the point where now they become an actual trafficker. They're either, they're either working with the trafficker, but they run the girls at that point and they kind of groom the girls and help them come into it. But they're, they're very much willing to, to do all of the same evil deeds. So essentially, you know, they're conditioned at a young age, imprinted, indoctrinated into, into that lifestyle to where it, it becomes part of who, who they are. Well, you have a daughter, yeah, two of them. How, how old's they're, your, they're, uh, they're in that same age range. It's fucking frightening as shit. So you know how naive they are at that age? Not mine. I'll tell you, mine are a bunch of little smart asses uh, <laughs> yeah. because I fuck with them yeah, all the yeah, time. Yeah, but, but uh, you know, like kids, kids no, at that age, yeah. but especially girls. I mean, even like, I mean, even as girls get older, it's really easy for us to talk them into stuff, right? Yeah. Um, it's really easy for guys to give them attention and and talk them into th- things. And so, I mean we know cause we used to try and talk them into things, right? Yeah. Just different kind of things. So there there's, there's this point where they, you know, a lot of these girls are, are looking for attention. They're looking for love. They're looking for all of these things. They, they may be rebelling against their parents and they think that their parents just don't understand or just don't know. And that this guy really is nice and he really is giving them, you know, special treatment and really must love them. And so maybe that girl is 14 and maybe she's hanging out at the mall and she's got a 16, 17 year old guy who's kind of Mm -hmm. giving her gifts and, and all of these things. And then it turns out that that guy is working directly for a trafficker. He's getting paid in either money or drugs. And so he's willing to basically be the spotter, even develop a relationship over even a long period of time, maybe even six months. Like this is what happens. And then that girl goes to a party and then it all changes in a, in a blink of an eye where now she's drugged. Now she's, uh, raped multiple times. They actually made a movie about a case here in Dallas. It's called eight days. You go find this movie. It's pretty, uh, pretty tragic, but the, a girl from a, a very conservative, great home, actually, this girl was kind of lured out. I think she was 16 and within, eight days she was raped 60 times six zero 60 times by different men and force-fed drugs i'm nick the host of the ufo chronicles podcast with first-hand witness accounts of the strange and unexplained covering ufos cryptids conspiracies and the paranormal 
Real people, real encounters. So come with us on the journey into the unknown. UFO Chronicles podcast is available to listen to on all apps. I'll see you soon. And her parents actually had some money and some political influence. So they were able to really put the spurs to the, the local government, local cops. But, you know, typically within that shorter amount of time, maybe it's a runaway. Nobody really knows. She was just gone. But what she had done is she'd snuck out to this party and that's where they, she got drugged and got passed off to somebody else who then took her home and then uh, raped her. And then he sold her to the traffickers and, and that's what happened. I mean, so, so in a very short amount of time, they do get conditioned. They clearly feel like if, if you're, if you are any age and, and you get that kind of abusive treatment well, that you're so in that concentration in, the, in that concentration, but like, you're so devastated. Like you have girls today who were raped when they were in college and now they're 70 years old and they've never spoke about it. Like I have women who come up and, and say, thank you. And sometimes it even takes them a while to get that story out where they're like, something like that happened to me or I was taken advantage of, or I was raped, you know, way back when they were way younger mm-hmm. and they hold that in because of shame, embarrassment, right? Like, and it's no different with these, these girls today, you know, they're, they're put into a situation where they don't, they don't even see the way out anymore. Yeah. And sometimes you look at it and you say, well, why don't they just walk away? Like clearly they, well, if it was that easy, they would all just walk away. Exactly. I, I but there's, there's the emotional hooks, there's ma- the manipulation and these guys have, uh, they have a very well-structured manipulation plan of how to keep these girls in it, you know, and there's really, there's kind of two different kinds of, there's really two different kinds of pimp traffickers, if you will. There's one that is considered the Romeo, you know, that almost goes along the lines of, uh, you know, they clearly they're, they're giving them gifts. They're telling them how much they love them and just, just do this for me. Like, like they seduce them into it. It, basically. it very much is like that Stockholm syndrome type of seduction. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we, I've got journals from some of these victims and when you go through it, you know, like they're one day they're, they're writing about how they want to please. And usually they call, they call their pimp daddy. Mm-hmm. A lot of times they're not even allowed to know what their, their traffickers name is. And so they're like, they're just trying to please daddy. Mm-hmm. And you know, they, you know, and then the next day they're like, they, they know that this is wrong and they, they want to find a way out, but they don't know how, but that they still want to like do, they still want to, you know, impress daddy. And they want him to think that they're, they want to be the top, the yeah. top girl, all, all those things. And then the other kind of trafficker pimp is, is what they call a gorilla, which is just does things through force and through brutality. Yeah. And so just purely by fear. So when you know that you're, if you mess up, you're going to get taken out to the desert and beaten and thrown in a hole. And sometimes that they they've done that to the point where that girl comes back and she knows better and, and everybody else is now on notice. Yeah. So when you have that kind of power over people, they'll do, they'll do anything you ask them to. And then you, you throw on the last piece of that is, uh, you know, heroin, yeah. they call heroin the leash for a reason. Mm-hmm. And it's because 
you will do anything for your next fix. Yeah. So it, obviously this is rampant. We'll get into some statistics here in a minute, but what I'm curious of is in terms of um, like where, where these operations are at, not on a kind of a big scale, but like, is there kind of a common thread or theme in terms of like, it's, it's a house in this type of neighborhood. It's a, a fucking warehouse in, in an industrial area. It's, you know, a series of fucking RVs or, or mobile homes in, in a rural area. Like is, is there, can you walk us through like, like what, what some of the common environments that, that shit like this is taking place in, or is it a wide swath of a lot of different ones? You know, we'd like to be able to, categorize it and put it into one box but we can't because when when we look at it we see we see everybody i mean i was talking to the law enforcement guy this morning and i won't mention the the school but it was the dean of a college um here in texas a very prominent very prominent place and that dean got wrapped up in one of their stings you know to buy miners like, can we call that motherfucker out? <laughs> I'm happy to do it. Like, I mean, I don't know where they're at with their yeah. investigation right now or, 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 or how all that's going. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's not my place right now, but, but, but yeah, that's what we see. We see people in government. We see people, um, you know, you look at some of this pedophilia stuff and you're like, you, you have people who are bus drivers for, for kids schools. Yeah. You, you see people in churches, you see people across the board and, we were just talking about this morning in another conversation with some law enforcement and, and they, it, it looks like everything else that you see and it happens in every facet of life. And so, so a lot of these fuckers are hiding in plain sight essentially is because their, their professions and their, and their personas otherwise would lead you to believe that yeah. th that'd be the last person that you'd think. So the, on the trafficker side, so, and I was kind of, going down a little bit on the, on the demand side there and talking about some of the, the Johns, if you will, the sex purchasers, but traffickers are the same way. But you know, th there was a case recently in, uh, about a, two years ago in Houston and it, the, the, the trafficker was a pilot for United airlines. Jesus fuck. <laughs> so, but United's this, taking uh, some shit these days. Yeah, right? <laughs> yeah. they, they, they've been, they, he was running three different brothels one was out of a hotel and, and two were out of houses. And so you'll see, you'll see a variety of things there too, where you'll see uh, even some of these oil executives who go, they get a, a couple years where they got to go to Saudi Arabia or somewhere. And so they rent out their nice expensive house here in a nice neighborhood. That and nobody would suspect. Nobody even suspected, but yeah. there's, you know, there's people coming in and out of there. Um, you'll see, you'll see all kinds of stuff. We had one case where, we were looking at massage parlors and massage parlors. Uh, I don't even know if I give this clue out to the audience, but like there's, there's a typically if they don't have a license, then they basically uh, almost like a hundred percent are doing something shady. Yeah. Right. And so like a, a massage license to be an actual so, massage parlor. Yeah. And so, and, and so some of these quote unquote massage parlors, they were saying, well, we only do foot massages because you don't have to have a license to do foot massages. Yeah. It's like, huh, <laughs> really? There's, yeah. there's a good target. Yeah. Well, let's go check that place out. <laughs> um, so there's, uh, some massage parlors that we started to look into and it ended up being a ring of parlors that were all tied together and they were sending, I think about $4 million a month back to China Jesus actually. Fuck. Yeah. So 
and that was a, a massive case and the, the feds clearly took it over and uh, they were they were begging to take that case. But yeah, that's you know that that happens from sometimes I guess what we would think would be the place would be like oh it's some seedy massage parlor and and sometimes it is. Sometimes we have these like these uh, wannabe rappers. Uh, they're they're the low hanging fruit, yeah. if you will. Yeah. They, they're 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 even on social media. You know, <laughs> fucking idiots. They're they're total goofballs. Yeah. We we actually did something around the uh, Super Bowl in Houston a couple of years ago, and we went into a a hotel which was clearly. I mean, we we identified it through some advertisements and some different things that we were looking at on the cyber side. And so through some cyber intelligence, we kind of identified this as a hotspot. So we went to go check it out. The, the very ironic thing about this whole story is that we actually had a film crew who just wanted to come out and film some of what we were doing. And so they randomly had picked a hotel during the Super Bowl when everything else was booked and they were able to get a room in this place. <laughs> and so as we're looking at the Google images of like where we were about to go check out they're like wait a minute that's the hotel that we're staying at we're like oh, perfect shit. so we have a room we can go <laughs> operate out of your room and uh so i went up there and i'm sitting in this room and the whole like fourth floor just smelled like um weed i mean clearly the people that owned that hotel were like in on the oh, drug shit. side as well as everything else but that and that's pretty common too a lot of times so when i go in there and i I'm trying to be like kind of nonchalant, but like, you know, I, I look, I look like what I look like, you know? And, uh, so I roll in there and I was just trying to get into that room and, and link up with those guys. As I'm walking down the hall, it was like being at a pimp's convention, right? Like, I mean, <laughs> it was like doors flinging open and this guy walking out with like a black guy with, he's got like a white, like suit with sequins, like gold sequins on it or some crap. And, and, and like his teeth are off. And it was totally like what you'd expect, right? Yeah. Like that's the total, like yeah. this guy's got to be a, you know, the pimp type, on the an MTV pimping type yeah. of show. Um, but that's, that place was, uh, that place was a hotbed for a lot of, um, that activity going on. And then, I mean, in, in, uh, three days, I think we built 44 cases on, yeah. on different human traffickers in yeah. for, for that. And um, some of those cases, some of those people travel to come in there. A lot of times what we see is we see people uh, running five states where they're taking these girls from state to state to state. They, they, they keep them on the move. So they're staying one step ahead of law enforcement because if law enforcement has to get a warrant to go and back and check this place out, even if it's a massage parlor, by the time they get back to the massage parlor, they get a warrant to look for this girl because they think that, you know, there's some nefarious activity there. Uh, that girl's gone. And, and a lot of times they've already even changed ownership of the, the, the establishment and like the, they, they're, they're usually a couple steps ahead of law enforcement, yeah. which is kind of where we come in to help fill those gaps as well. So I guess the two, two things then is that, you know, from an operational standpoint on like a, a tactical level, you know, or a, a small scale level, like where individual houses or, or whatever containment that these pimps and, and organizations are using to house these girls. It, it could be any fucking thing. Basically you've, you've uh, seen it all. It could be anything. Um, it could be anywhere. But then, yeah. but, but then the, the other uh, side of that coin is that they're generally going to be places that they're not going to spend a whole lot of time at. They're going to bounce them around and, and train and change ownership and, and move them around to, to avoid the, the fucking heat. Right. Uh, that happens. I mean, it happens both ways. Yeah. Uh, absolutely. I mean, um, what I think a lot of people don't realize, and this is very important to clarify that these, these victims 
you know, not that it should be any different if, if I say, well, this person looks like me and you, or this is like our family, our, our people, um, versus like, oh, that person is from Thailand or that person's from Cambodia or whatever. Um, it's still, it's still a human life and very important, but I think that we, we tend to look at people that are like us and we say, well, yeah, if it's not affecting Mm -hmm. people like us, then we're not, not as outraged. We're not as outraged to take action. And the reality is when I'm talking about 12 to 14 year olds being the average age, like these are, these are kids. American kids. Yeah. The majority of these victims are American citizens mm-hmm. being exploited by American citizens. Yeah. You, you have the other, the other sides too. I mean, you have the Russian mob running some stuff on these coast. You have like cartels that run certain things you have some gang activity there's a lot of different things wrapped up in there but the majority of what happens is just some guys who are bullies to make looking to make money and they're ideally they're getting kids that are young because that product is something they can sell over and over and over it's not uncommon to have somebody be sold 20 times a day, Jesus six, Christ. six and a half, seven days a week. Well, so here's one thing I'm curious about. Obviously like there's multiple layers to how this, this, you know, travesty both affects uh, our, our society, but also how, how it has the ability to operate from a supply and demand standpoint. One thing I'm curious about is in terms of the, the actual, the purchaser, right? The, mm-hmm. the, the John, is that what they refer to him as? Yeah, sex purchaser John is so, the traditional name. So w- with these people, like, is there, <clears throat> in terms of kind of targeting it from the other, the other side of the coin, like, w- what is being done? Is there something? Is is there a, a stereotype or a, a profile, if you will, that that those guys uh, or individuals fall into that that makes it easy to target them, or or like, what what can you speak to on that as far as what's being done to to sure. try to hit it from that angle? Sure. So you really have three sides that you can hit this from. You have the victim centric side where, I mean, there's groups out there that even go and try and do rescues. You know, they try and figure out where these girls are and they, they try and do rescues. Well, I would debate that that's not the proper way to do that because that is the job of law enforcement. And technically if you go in and you, grab snatch and grab somebody who's underage that's kidnapping so that's actually illegal for you and you know penalties there but there's there's the side you know and there's a lot of people that really emotionally we gravitate towards the victim-centric response we're we're like well we've got to help these with these victims these girls we need like we need to put a bunch of money into these rehabilitation centers these these uh these outlets for girls to go and and there's uh, the traffickers laugh at that. They just laugh at that because they're like, that doesn't affect my business at all. Mm-hmm. Like it, I will have another girl in that spot within two days and go ahead and go rehab that girl. I'm done with her. Yeah. Like you're taking my old product away that I don't even care about. She's used up. I'm already going after her and they're just regurgitating all of these. So there's, there's um, the the victim side, and then there's the purchaser side. And on the purchaser side, typically what's happened within law enforcement is they do sting operations. So they put out a fake advertisement, 
and then they see who comes in kind of to catch a predator style, yeah, right? Yeah, fucking, uh, what the fuck's that guy's name? Yeah. He's like, yeah, have a seat. Yeah. I love that shit. Yeah. And they're always like, what the yeah. fuck? Yeah, exactly. And so, you know, that's kind of been the traditional way to to lure these guys in. But that, but you're missing two sides. Like, you use a fake ad. You didn't rescue any victims. Yeah. Um, you didn't free any victims. And the trafficker was untouched and unnoticed and unlocated. And so there's you know, like the two things that we actually care about most are the victim and then locking up the bad guy. Yeah. And, and the, the Johns or the purchasers in the middle, you know, they, they, they get caught up in these sting arrests. And traditionally there's just a, like I said, there was a Dean at school. I mean, what did he get? He got a slap on the hand, right? Like, and, and to me, that and, shit ought to change. You know? My, but. my home state, like they had, they did a sting and they got, they got seven people wrapped up in it that they arrested. Um, and, one of those owned like a big car lot and he was a prominent person in the community and they, they decided not to release any names because they were afraid that like, you know, they're whatever. I think you're right. I think that until we raise the risk and everything that we do is purely based on how do you dismantle a market or how do you take down a business? You have to make the risk so high yeah, that mean, it's not worth the reward. Yeah. I mean, to, to me, like not, not to oversimplify it, but there, there's two things I want to bring up is number one is the, the to catch a predator thing. To me, and I think with most people, is that that I found it absolutely fucking astounding. Uh, in that, when you when you watch one episode of that show, you know it's it's usually like one fake ad in one fucking city over a three day period, and they're catching like fifteen fucking dudes. Oh yeah, you know so so that to me that tells you what what you know really the the demand side is what's fueling this. I mean, it's no different than with a fucking ivory trade with diamonds sure. with fucking anything is that. If, if you remove the demand or in this case, make it so incredibly fucking stiff to where people are like, you know what, even though that's what I want to yeah. do, like I, I, I'm not even fucking going anywhere near it. And and to me, it's just like with prison, you know, to yeah. me, like my, my thoughts on prison are, are pretty extravagant. But, you know, to me, like if <laughs> if you like I, I would I would treat prison like, um, you know, I, I would I would make everybody be completely fucking naked. In in a six you know ju in a room just big enough to fucking live in with absolutely nothing in it. There's a Make hole. In, yeah, there's yeah. a hole in the ground, and 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 I would keep the ambient temperature in there to a degree in which uh, you you stayed just above hypothermic. You know, with no fucking clothes on, you sleep on the fucking ground, and you live like a fucking miserable goddamn animal. Because I'll tell you right now, like if that was the condition mm -hmm. to where you had no stimulus, there's no TV, there's no weights, there's no fucking sun, you have just enough food to stay alive, just enough ambient temperature to not freeze to death, and nothing to fucking sleep on. Like I, I promise you, yeah. that 90% of the people that, that landed in there would be like, motherfucker, I am never going back yeah. there. You know, and so to me, like. Again, I know it's not quite that fucking simple, but but the fact that that oh well he's a judge or he owns a fucking car dealership like I don't give a flying fuck like I, you ought to pull those guys fucking nuts off and hang them from a, from a fucking bridge with a goddamn sign around their neck in my opinion like to me that that that's fucking horseshit that 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 more is not being done on on a on a legal side to fucking hold hold these motherfuckers accountable for for driving it because it's like take heroin. If no, if nobody's doing heroin anymore, nobody's going to give a fuck to sell it anymore. Sure, you know, sure. if if nobody's purchasing fucking girls, and and if the risk is so goddamn high, that that the consequences are so severe to where you know it it, it drives ninety percent of the fucking people away from doing it. To me, that's a that's a big goddamn step in the right direction. There, there still unquestionably, I think, needs to be 
um, you know, the, all of the things that we're talking about in terms of, of keeping, cause there's, there's always going to be nut jobs that are sure. like, yeah, that I'm going to do it. Like sure. you're not going to get rid of all of it. But, but to me, like that's a good way to start. If um, you look at Norway, how many people drink and drive in Norway? Like nobody does. You know why? Cause you lose your license forever. Yeah. Like one time you lose your driver's license forever. Yeah. So nobody does it. They find other ways to like go drink and have a good time, but they yeah. don't, they don't, they don't yeah. have DUIs. They, they, the risk is so high. Yeah. It's not worth it. Yeah. So, you know, like that's kind of the same motto that we work, we work on as well. And I think on the demand side, the way that you raise the risk is now clearly if they go in, in a sting and it's for a minor, that is a felony. Yeah. So, that that's a big deal to me i um, mean i'm talking fucking cut your balls no, off <laughs> shove them in your mouth and hang you from no, a bridge with I'm, a sign around I, your neck like, I, I, i'm also of the of the standpoint of like yeah. what's a 38 caliber cost right like that's, yeah so but i think that there's you know we have a we have a constitution that that the legal system protects the criminal under the same legal structure that it protects you and i so everybody has that process that legal process but the but the reality is we have to have stiffer penalties. And I know there's a lot of people that as this is becoming a little bit more of an awareness thing, they're, they're pushing towards that. For example, in Montana, my home state, we actually brought three of the victims, three victims uh, to the state legislature when they were about to vote on, on what that penalty should look like. Mm -hmm. And when they told their stories uh, in front of the, in front of the, the Congress there, they in this as far as i know this is the only state that has this but it's a lifetime uh sentence now Good. so so i think those kinds of things raise the risk um, but that's all on the purchaser side and really i think this side this side of heaven you're never going to solve the problem as long as there's yeah, I mean, like you said there's always going to be dirty yeah. dirty minded well, men, and then we have a we have an epidemic in pornography and in the, in, the, in, the, in the stimulation levels that people are looking at to go um, to the next level of that and the next level of that. And not only that, I think there's also a, I think the statistic is about one in a hundred is pre, uh, destined, if you will, to be into pedophilia. So like one out of a hundred people out there, not saying that they're going to act on that, but they're predispositioned to. So yeah. like, that's a lot. Yeah. No, I mean, like I said to me, I mean, you've got to just like with dismantling fucking cartels or terrorist networks, mm -hmm. like it's a, it's a multi-prong approach, you know, to me, it's just like, to me, that's sure. an easy one, you know, like, yeah. and and that's one that, that collectively, like the, the normal sane, not twisted motherfuckers can, can actually change that like sure. that, you know? So, well, there's one more but, piece to this and this is a piece that we actually go after. We, we will help in some of the other, the first two arenas, but the thing that we focus on is, is the side of going after the trafficker, which is really the storefront and is yeah. the source because you can't have a traffic victim without a sex trafficker. Sure. Right. So if you go after, if you have a limited amount of resources and you focus it on going after the actual trafficker who up to this point had been risk-free, yeah. like making a hundred thousand dollars per victim per year, risk-free running three to five victims. So half a million type dollars, tax-free yeah. all you got to do is buy some heroin some hotel rooms and some happy meals um that's what they're feeding these girls and so literally you're at a point where the money is so good and d this is 100 percent so about money yeah. like 100 percent. the reason that they do that is because it's easy there's no risk and it's for profit yeah. that is it there's no ideological reasons behind any of this it's purely about money yeah. now the purchasers 
um, you know, you can look at this a couple of different ways. And Nick always uses like the iPhone as an example of saying, Hey, did you know that you needed an iPhone before there was an iPhone? Probably not. Right. Yeah. Cause you're like, you didn't know it existed. Yeah. Like you didn't know. And then you, there was also like no availability. Mm-hmm. So what kind of creates the demand is the availability, right? Yeah. So if you can take away the availability sure. and you go after the availability by going after the storefront, you go after the trafficker, right? So when you can crush that side of the market and you can put the risk so high for the trafficker and by, and by going after the trafficker, you also are going to probably get some sex purchasers caught up in it. And you're also going to free every victim that that trafficker has plus all the potential victims that trafficker would have. And that's where deliver fund really comes in and puts our focus because up until, up until very recently, the traffickers have had zero risk and they've been operating with, um, you know, just literally making gobs of money and, it's stupid for them to not continue business. Yeah. And so, and all they are at the end of the day, it really is some bullies. And as soon as you insert just a little bit of risk in there, a lot of those guys will go find something else to do. Yeah. Something with that's less risk averse. So, I mean, to me from hearing you talk about it, it sounds like, and this is just, you know, off the cuff, but like from a, from kind of a three prong approach of, you know, make the, make the penalties way fucking stiff, make the yeah. consequences on the purchaser way stiffer. That's something that's easy for, for society to yeah. do. So let's get on that society. Number two is, is, uh, is crushing the fucking, the supplier. And, and that's where you guys come in. We're going to get into some of uh, some of the stats and, and, uh, and tactics, procedures, et cetera, there of what you can share here in a minute. But then the other thing too, that I, I want to kind of wrap up with is, uh, is some different things that, uh, that we as a society, uh, you know, parents or, um, you know, village upbringers, if you will, of, of these kids and these age ranges and these victims, uh, is, is helping be smarter about not, not falling into that stuff, which we'll, we'll kind of end on. But, uh, one of the, I've, I've got kind of a list of, of things that I'm, I'm curious about and I, and I want our listeners to, to hear from you is some of we've, you've already talked a little bit about the tactics in terms of, you know, either the Romeo style or the gorilla style in terms of the perpetrator, but what are some other tactics used that, uh, that you can, you can get into, uh, that are, that are typically used by these, uh, these fuckers to, to lure kids in and, and take them. Man, there's, there's a lot of different things. And, and, uh, it's, it's, again, it ends up being kind of a broad question there's things that I've heard recently. There's one of our traffickers that, that we were able to get arrested and convicted, but he was, he was specifically hanging out at fast food restaurants. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and ironically, I was in Atlanta recently and heard a very similar story there from a lady who had been talking about a case there where, I mean, this guy literally was going through a, a, um, I think it was like a Burger King and had gone through a, a few times and had been talking to this girl who's, you know, she's fairly young, like 17 and like she's working there. She's, she's working the okay. window. She was working the window actually. Yeah. And he convinced her yeah, after coming through multiple times and saying, Hey, you're so beautiful. Like you should, you know, why are you working here? I can, I can should make you, model. I can make you a queen. I can give you all these things. And, and, uh, he was using the line of, you know, he was selling high end purses around the world and she could come and help him and be a model for that and do all these things. And so she, she actually left her job and got in the car with him and it was immediately trafficked, you know, and, and that's, 
that's, uh, that's something that happens. There's a recent story that I don't know how this, this turned out, but I was talking to the mother and she had two girls with her. One was young enough that she had the child on her shoulder or in her arm and the other girl, they were at target and her other daughter was like kind of down on the end of the aisle and she got that spidey mama sense. And mm-hmm. she said, man, I got to, I got to lock in this girl. And so she, she brings her daughter over and she'd been talking to this guy who was, you know, seemed like he was trying to have nice conversation. He was like, Hey, can you help me look for this or that, whatever? But, um, mama got a real bad vibe yeah, and got her daughter kind of got out of there. It was definitely a weird situation. Went to the security of the store they looked at the video and that guy had been loitering there for two hours. There was two other guys that were loitering around the front front doors, just kind of looking at their cell phones. And like, I hear those stories all the time. Uh, so, I mean, how do they, how do they, how do they get these girls? I mean, it is straight up getting to the point that it's so profitable. They're so low risk that they're willing to go out and, and do straight up abductions. Like the, like it used to be more of like a lure them in kind of deal. Uh, but you, as parents, you've got to be super, not paranoid, but you need we to be, be very aware. You need to be vigilant and be very aware at all <laughs> times. And, and the other side is, um, you know, you can have these abductions happen, but, but, as far as these girls getting lured into it, I think one of the best solutions that we can look at is having the conversation and just sitting down with your, your kids, having the conversation about some of these things that are out there that they need to not just be walking and looking at their phone all the time. They need to actually be head on a swivel, be aware of what's going on around them. And really the, the girls especially are going to not believe it if their parents tell them something, but if their friends tell them they're going to listen to their friends, but even more than that, their friends can report back to the parents or some authority figure. So their friends are usually the first ones to say, you're caught up in something bad. Like I know these, I can recognize these, these signals of like, this guy is doing these things and he's clearly bad news. And while you don't see it because you never see it when you're in it, your friends can take that to the authorities and then, you know, go that direction. Yeah. So that's a big, that's a big thing that kids can do, but it, it, there does need to be an education awareness uh, amongst them for what, again, for what we do, we really focus our niche on, on taking the very best people that have been doing a career in counterterrorism and taking those, some of those same methodologies, but also honing them more directly for this and going going with the same people, the same methodologies, some of the same technology and advancing those in the specific market to get into the hands on the front edge for law enforcement. Because at the end of the day, that's who can do something about it. law enforcement. It's their job. You know, it's really their job. And, and a lot of them didn't realize what kind of scale this was happening on. And when they did, they had no tools, no resources to do it. And so deliver fund steps in to, to fill that gap, to, to empower them, to enable them, to give them the very best technologies. And we've also created systems where we have a, a host platform that it kind of takes the best of, of the investigative tools from the FBI and, and the best uh, of link analysis type mapping and charting of you know terrorist networks, but, but now into human trafficking networks, combines that into one, one browser-based platform that we can put in the hands of law enforcement for a very cheap 
affordable because that's the problem. A lot of that stuff yeah. is just so expensive, but we can do it in a very affordable and, and, and we raise money to do that for them for the first few years. And then eventually they can kind of budget it, budget yeah. it in. But do you think that, uh, I guess that it's a two part question. Is there, and if not, do you, do you think that it's a viable solution to have a, a, at a federal level, a national task force? Man. Yeah. dedicated. I mean, no different than a, ICE or, or that is a great question. And as a society, I think we really need to stop, take a look in the mirror and go, if you're telling me that human trafficking is, is fastly approaching being the second largest illicit market in the world, but yet we have, we have guns and drugs, right. And, and, and terrorism. So we have agencies for yeah. terrorism. We have agencies for narcotics. We have agencies for yeah. all of these other things, but we don't have an agency for human trafficking. Yeah. And, and this is something where, you know, it's like, if you were going to sell drugs, um, there's a lot of risky things that you have to do just to be able to even do that. And, and then you can only do it one time and then you have to go buy more and sell more. And, and, and in human trafficking, you are selling your same product over and over and over with, again, with like little to no risk. I mean, they're typically a couple degrees of separation away from the crime. So the worst thing that happens is a girl gets arrested and maybe she's, she gets uh, prostitution and narcotics charges. And, and that's starting to change because we're starting to have law enforcement look at these girls as the victim versus just, you know, that they're a prostitute. But, what really needs to happen is it, like you said, there's a, there's multiple prong approach between the laws have to be stiffer. There has to be risk on all sides. I think that the the purchasers need to be getting at a minimum felonies and having their balls cut off, shoved in their well, mouth and hung from a bridge. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and the public should be made aware. So there's public, um, you know, like humiliation, humiliation. Like absolutely. Like put their sign on a billboard and be like, yeah. So what if this guy's a Senator? Yeah. He, he's a mother was, doing this these things to to children yeah Yeah. i mean so so that's a big deal and then i think the again i always come back to like the really the piece that i think if we want to reduce this market we very much believe that with the right funding we can reduce what has been going exponentially up we can curb and reduce by 80 percent within the next five to seven years so a couple of things in terms of statistics to, to kind of bring or, or hammer home the, the severity in, in, uh, in which this problem persists in our society is what, what is this, like what statistics can you share in terms of, of the numbers of, of how often this is happening? How many girls, I, I know obviously it's impossible to say, but is there kind of a range of an, an estimated, you know, yeah. statistics you can share? So, I mean, if you look at the national center for missing and exploited children, they, they report 700 to 800,000 cases per year of, of just calls. Now, some of those are like kids that ran away and showed back up or there's different things that happen there. But they, they estimated that one in six, maybe one in seven of those ends up actually being uh, a child who gets trafficked. So six so, figures. So six figures. Yeah, absolutely. And that's and so, every year. That's every year. So there's, there's, there's probably at least 100,000 kids. When I started looking at this originally, I was like, you know what? Like if I, if I can help one, yeah, if I can help one, it's worth it. Right. Um, and everybody says that and it sounds kind of cliche and kind of stupid, but when you hear a story of what has actually happened to one of these, one of these children, one of these people, you're like, as a human life and man, I'm, I do whatever to, to 
jump in there. But, but what the reality of it, it's happening on a massive scale to the point of hundreds of thousands, you know, a year are being, being trafficked to the point where it's an illicit market. So a lot of the statistics that are out there, I just, you know, I think there's, I think they've been extrapolated on some, some things and I don't know how accurate some of those are because it's an illicit market, yeah, right? Like, how do you know that? Like yeah. clearly um, there's a lot of stuff that happens that we don't know about in yeah. illicit markets. We can't, uh, we can't, we don't have the front window to, to I mean, see so, everything. I mean, so, so these numbers are, are bare minimum, like at least that many. Well, and then, and then in the world, you know, you, in the world, you have a lot of human trafficking and in the U S you, which is, can be labor trafficking in the U S most of the human trafficking that happens in the U S is specifically sex trafficking. Yeah. And the reason because is that's where the profit is. Yeah. That's just the, the biggest profit. I mean, there's, so they say worldwide, they say worldwide, it's over $150 billion market. Yeah. And that is, I mean, I think that that's more than Apple, Google, you know, some of these big tech companies combined for their, their yearly profit, $150 billion. Well, no, I mean, that's, that's bigger than a lot of countries fucking economies, you know? Um, so two things as far as that goes with, with the financial aspect is, is do you, do you have a, a ballpark figure of what it is in this country? And then two, I'm curious, like, you know, when you say they're selling their product over and over, is there a range? Does it vary? Like, like what, what are people paying? uh, you know, for that, like, is it, is it that fucking inexpensive to where people like, where people are just like, yeah, it's fucking 20 bucks. I mean, like, uh, I mean, what, what is it? Like, what, are, like how, and how much are, are these guys? And I know, again, I know it varies, but like, what, what is the kind of the range of, of what these fucking assholes are, are making and charging and doing all that? Can you speak to that? Yeah, absolutely. So it's a little different in each market. You know, it's very, it's very custom in different locations, even around the U S but I think on average, what we see is, is, uh, a lot of these girls are, are making maybe close to a hundred dollars, 60 to a hundred dollars probably per transaction. And a lot of times these guys are really pushing those girls to try and make a thousand dollars a day. Mm-hmm. Um, so sometimes, you know, they'll even push them out on the street and say, don't come back till you know, you got a thousand bucks and you know, there, there's a whole another side of this too, where like, that's a, that's an awful lot of money to be making when you're running multiple girls, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, a couple thousand bucks a day, three to $5,000 a day, uh, is in your, your expenses are very, very low. The price point on children is clearly higher. It's a, it's a demand thing that people will pay more for, for those sick, sick individuals. Um, but it's, it's the, it's the thing that people pay more for there. This does happen to boys. I don't know what that percentage is. I've heard as high as 12% is boys. Mm-hmm. Um, and those clearly go for more as well, you know, and, and I, I say these things and sometimes it's, it's, you know, we look at it from more of an analytical standpoint and maybe it sounds less emotional, um, because we're trying to analyze it as a market on how we crush this market. And, and, and at the end of the day, the way the trafficker looks like at it is, it's just, that's exactly what it is. It's, it's just, just a business, business. Yeah. just a business. And it's about money, but these are human lives. And, you know, when you have a four year old child, 
that ends up in something like this. I mean, there's a lot of work to do to try and get them to have a normal life after that, but yeah. they should have never been in that position to begin with. Yeah. And the way that I think we do that is we go after, we go after the traffickers. We make that risk so high. We make it so there's nowhere they can hide. Yeah. And that's, that's, that's the system in which deliver is bringing to the table. No matter if they touch the internet, we can find them yeah. and they have to, they have to advertise to, to be able to sell their product yeah. and in that business cycle, they have, they have one of two ways they can sell a product. They can kick it out to the street and say, go stand on the street until you make it. Well, that, that means it's out in the open and we can see it. The problem has happened in the last 10 or 15 years is the internet. Like that's the thing of our generation, right? Yeah. But like the internet has allowed you to go online and to buy a child for sex the same as if you were going to order a pizza yeah. and you can have it delivered to wherever you want. But the, like, but the good news is, is that you can fight it that way too. You can absolutely find yeah. it. And that's the great thing is it gives you a starting point because you can find if they have to, they have to advertise it. You find that advertisement, you work backwards to see who's behind it. And we have a variety of, of amazing, uh, cyber intelligence and cyber investigative tools and platforms and we have amazing people who are NSA targeters who are, yeah. who are working back to see who's behind those. And then, and then we can action on them. We can build the case. We can get that to law enforcement. And I mean, we've had tremendous, tremendous results. We run a 10 day class, as I think I mentioned before. And in that class, we teach them all these different technology tools and then they start building cases. They yeah. start building cases for their own jurisdiction. We actually had an officer from the sheriff's department in Santa Barbara come through uh, last fall and on like day two, which he was just starting to use those tools for himself. Um, he built out a case and he was like, Hey, I've got this guy like dead to rights. And it was a case where this individual had been trafficking a girl who had just recently turned 18. Mm -hmm. And as I said before, you know, that makes it a little bit more difficult yeah. because then the legal questions are like, well, is she doing this by choice? Right. Like yeah. they, they really have to prove it out. But we had all, all of the data that he had been trafficking her for over a year. And so she was 17 during that. So immediately that's a, human trafficking case. Yeah. And so he went home to his hotel room that night, dropped a warrant back home. His uh, deputies went and made the arrest the next day nice. of this guy. And that's, that's how quickly that happened. And the yeah. sheriff was like, wow, this is the way to go because this is like a total proactive approach where when we actually go in to interview the victim as well as the trafficker, we already know what questions to ask because we've already, it's like having all of your homework already done. Yeah. And, and that's how quickly this can happen. And with these tools and, and there's another case here recently that we did, I was actually sitting at home and at like 10 o'clock at night. Cause you know, I, I up till two working on yeah. stuff. And so it was quiet. I'm like, bing, and get a message on LinkedIn from a lady from New York city who had worked, um, on a, Tra anti-trafficking organization and asked me about like do you do victim services and i said no you know not not really like what we do is we equip train and advise specifically law enforcement and kind of here's what we do and she's like oh man great well can you maybe link me into somebody that does human like does victim services and i was like what exactly are you what exactly is it that you need or you're looking for? And she said, well, I just got off the phone with this girl who is somewhere between Tulsa and she thinks Dallas. She was trafficked before in her life. She got in with a really bad group of guys and she's been re-trafficked. She's with a trafficker right now. It's like, 
hold the phone. Like that's exactly what we do. Right. Yeah. So like, if you can tell me that for sure, somebody's in being human trafficked right now, we're, we'll find them. Yeah. And so that's exactly what we did. And within 18 hours from me getting hit up on LinkedIn, we, we found three of our analysts had all independently verified where this person was. And we had Homeland security make the arrest within 18 hours, warrants, everything, boom, boom, boom. That led to another case, which was actually in, um, which is in Kansas city with another trafficker who was affiliated with that same deal. So we got, I think three traffickers arrested and I, I forget, I think there was like four victims. And so that is something that, that we can, uh, every, every case that we've been involved with so far has also resulted in 100% conviction rate of that's these traffickers. Awesome. So might not have that forever, but that's pretty awesome. Yeah, and and so, really awesome. you know, between us scaling that capability to law enforcement and they can go and be that successful and, and have really high, uh, success on the prosecution rate, as well as the cases that we're involved with. I mean, all of a sudden there's risk in the system and, uh, go find a different job, man. If you yeah. want, if you think it's okay to exploit any human for any of these things, but I mean, this is pure, pure evil. And, uh, we'd like to come and, and just bury you, but yeah. at a minimum, you're going to end up in that cage. Yeah. Uh, we actually had a case where a guy was keeping a girl in a dog crate. And so, I mean, that's, that's like one of my things where I'm just like, you know what? Like you keep these girls in cages we're putting you behind cages. Yeah. It's no, just you a matter of like time. An animal, you get treated like a fucking animal. I mean, to me, the, the, I mean, I don't even want to call them animals. Like, I don't know any animals that are that fucking evil. You know I mean? I, I deal with animals for a living and, and they do some, I would say some less than sanitary shit, but they're not twisted like that. You know, yeah. I mean, they may throw fucking shit at you, you know, or, <laughs> or bite you in the fucking hamstring or whatever. But like, you know, Christ, the, you know, most, the, most animals are, are, not, not not most they're all more fucking civil than that i mean it's it's fucking it's mind-boggling but um it's tragic and, and and i think the what happens on the psychology of somebody i mean you know they say that uh, one of the statistics is i think like three out of five girls are molested by the time they're like 18 right like dude, what what kind of society do we live in when yeah. when that's what's going on and, and, and those girls repress that and they hold that but like you wonder why adults have like issues yeah. it's because of things that happened to them in their childhood yeah like every time yeah. and so you know we were talking we started this conversation out about talking about strong families and being able to you know b- breed strong people to do good things in the world yeah. and and that you know like it's important to have to give our children a strong healthy childhood yeah life is hard enough life is hard enough without having those kinds of issues to be uh physically and mentally and sexually just abused and like i said i mean like can you imagine being a 12 13 year i mean these are your daughter's age who are being raped but by a lot of times just disgusting nasty people who probably otherwise couldn't get laid yeah you know yeah but so that so they'll pay for it but there but there also is like the there's the businessman who's going yeah. in there with a with a forty thousand dollar suit on you know yeah. and, and that happens so. you yeah, know it's a twisted element to our society that uh is beyond fucking embarrassing i mean like it's, it's a fucking travesty but um if we could i'd, I'd love to run down just kind of a, yeah. a, a little laundry list of 
just you know for for the listeners out there that have kids in this age range or just fucking in general so that uh you know we can kind of better equip them from from what what you know your average citizen other than you know supporting deliver fund or uh or trying to you know get get stiffer penalties etc you know these are things that, that are tangible actions that that we as as productive members of society can take with our own children to to help uh, stave this type of bullshit from happening. But, um, is there from a, a most prevalent threat? And by that, I mean, you know, most popular areas targeted, is there kind of a, a handful of things that like, this is where this is predominantly happening or is it just, it's fucking everywhere and you got to have your head on a swivel. It's everywhere and you got to have your head on a swivel. I mean, it's absolutely everywhere. I, I live in whitefish, you know, I moved to Dallas recently, but in whitefish, Montana, there was a case where this guy, was we had, you know, he had multiple children that he, and most people in the community just didn't realize that. I mean, he was like running a, uh, wasn't a daycare, but it was kind of like a, you know, the kids were coming over to his house all the time. And like, how old are these kids? These kids were, were pretty young. I would say from probably four years old to maybe 12 years old. And multiple kids, he had, he was sexually assaulting and he was actually even selling as well. To, to, and he, he had this whole ring going, I mean, this whole like group of people and they were, they were videoing and, and taking all kinds of, I mean, he was making molds of uh, the genitalia of, the, of his children. Like it was, is the worst, like it's the worst story, but that was in a, a small resort town in Montana. Yeah. Right. So it happens everywhere. And a lot of times people, they kind of, uh, have like a weird feeling like, man, my neighbor across the street, like they, they, they act kind of weird and do something a little different and like speak up, man, tell the authorities like, and, and pursue it. Like if you think that something weird is going on, you know, if that that guy ends up having three girls locked in his basement for, for 10 years and you, you suspected something was going on, but you never said anything. Yeah. God help your soul too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure. yeah. Right. But in terms of, uh, so, you know, societally it happens everywhere. I mean, on the kind of the micro level of, is it, you know, convenience stores, Walmarts, p- parks, like, is it fucking absolutely everywhere there too? Or is, are there a handful of areas that like, it's even more, more prominent? Uh, yeah. I mean, it's the mall. It's, it's, uh, fast food joints it's it's the park it's you know one of the things that a lot of i see parents doing is is posting stuff on social media with like no filters and and anybody can see it i mean i think that's a world that we're we're not really sure how to live in yet and and it's not really regulated and so i think that there's parents need to be really smart, use privacy settings, not just leave it open for anybody. I mean, we could go on Facebook and start looking and we could find a very attractive 15 year old girl here in Dallas. And we could probably look at her status updates and figure out where she's going to be and then be there and have a whole plan set up to get her in our car. Yeah. Like, a, you know, I'm mean, like, just be smart. Like there's a, you know, there's, you just got to realize first and foremost that there is evil out there. There's evil people and don't live your life in paranoia, but be aware and like teach, teach your kids that these things do happen and that they need to be smart and be smart for themselves and their friends, you know? Yeah. 
uh, and so on that, the most common age in sex, you said 12 to 14 year old girls, is that? So that's the, the age that entering into that market, I think there's a, you know, there's a lot of these, there's a, man, there's a lot of kids who come, who are homeless kids, kids that run away, but there, I mean, there's kids that age out there literally in place like Dallas, right up the road. I mean, they're sleeping under a bridge yeah. and they're prime candidates. The foster care system is prime candidates. So, you know, there, there's no place that's, that's, uh, untouched by this. And yeah, it's just fucking everywhere. <laughs> it's just, yeah. it's so, just, I mean, like yeah. age wise, like there's no, Oh, they're good. Cause they're, you know, it's boys, girls, fucking four to, to 17. Really. I mean, like it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. I mean, it even happens with, uh, you know, I mean, you could be 21 and, and, and be, be lured in or be somehow, uh, manipulated into doing something. Uh, so, I mean, I've even seen it where they've had, they've taken a girl's child and, and now that's a control factor, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a means of manipulation. So she'll do anything because oh, they have her child yeah. and that's a big thing that traffickers do. And if these girls have kids while they're being trafficked, then they control that as well. Yeah. And, but, but yeah, I mean, on the, on the, on the first side of it is just, it can happen anywhere to anybody. Like it doesn't matter. It does not matter where it's happening in the, in the parking lot of Walmart. It's happening inside the target. It's happening at a Burger King. It's happening at a church in a park. It's happening at a church. It's, it's, it is vigilant is the word that you used before. And like parents, be vigilant. Yeah. And, and the smallest towns to the biggest fucking cities. I mean, there's, there's nowhere that's off limits from it. Yeah. And I think so. I mean, what's the solution, right? Like the, you have to, as a parent, uh, you need to get involved. You need to, you need to learn about the issue. There's a lot more information starting to come out. I think we have a, a government administration now that is really taking a focus, making this a priority. And so we're starting to spend more money on some resources and that's helpful, but still like as a society, we need to come around and just embrace the fact that this is not okay. And that we're going to stand up, you know, like in the example of, you know, mothers against drunk driving, like they didn't have, they didn't have a bunch of, uh, law degrees and they didn't have a bunch of, you know, titles behind their name is some mothers that were pissed off that were pissed off and they stood up and said we've had enough and this is not okay and they made a ruckus and they showed up at the courts and they said like this guy needs a stiffer sentence and and like that's that's where we need to go as a society and just say that this is no longer okay we ended slavery well on paper with the 13th amendment right like this is a couple hundred years later and we're we have more slaves in the world today than there ever has been in, in, in the world before. Yeah. I mean, we have a lot bigger population, but still like it's happening. It's happening in the United States. It's happening in our cities, in our neighborhoods. And I can give all kinds of ridiculous statistics, but they, they're almost like mind blowing, but like, just put it into perspective of like, again, like you have two daughters, you, you have nieces, you have granddaughters, you have, you know, somebody in your family where there's, there's a daughter, there's a child, there's a son, like, like this is, this is us. This is Americans. Like we are better than this and we need to step up and, 
and make ourselves aware and on the side of crushing this market, man, like I think I said earlier, crushing evil, like that's my, that's my hashtag, man, yeah. because like we have a solution, yeah. but we have to fund it. So, you know, I mean, to put a plug in for deliver fund, I mean, that's, that's just one place, but that's, that's a pretty important place because like I said, we can crush this market by 80%, probably in five to seven years given the right funding. And it's not that much. Yeah. Um, it's not that much. And we can, we can actually get victims freed for about a thousand dollars about what it averages at, you know, and get somebody locked behind bars for $3,500. Yeah. Like that's pretty damn cheap. Yeah. And as soon as that starts to happen, the risk has gone up so high, so fast that the rest of those guys are going to bail, you know, yeah, and find so, something easier to yeah, do. Absolutely. Well, um, that's fucking great shit. And, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll wrap it up with, uh, with how, how we can get involved with deliver fund. But, uh, before, before we kick off that last, uh, component, um, the two things that I want to cover is is resources for after the fact. I know you said that the the traffickers themselves laugh at that, but it's still like to me that's a component that uh, I, I know that that's not what you guys special in, specialize in, but that's an important component to getting the 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 victims themselves back to some semblance of normalcy and, and whatever. And are there any groups that you can uh, refer to, or, or or kind of what what's your um, your thought process on that? Because to me, like that is an, a very important component to to minimizing the amount of damage uh, sure. as much as possible, because that's something that, you know, you have to be reactive because it's already taken place. Like what, what's your take on that? Before Sarah discovered chumbacasino.com, she enjoyed chamomile tea. Come on, big jackpot. And being in PJs by six. Let's go. The new fun Sarah Woo-hoo! often thinks about the old boring Sarah yes. and wonders if that Sarah ever really existed. <laughs> Chumba Casino has over a hundred casino style games. So join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. No purchase necessary. We were created by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered ChumbaCasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Yeah. So on the victim side, there is what what we see a lot is, is, uh, I mean, we, we operate nationally, but we typically vet out and work with organizations in these local areas. And so, uh, you know, here in Dallas, there's a, there's a organization promise house. They do, they do, they do some of that and they I think they do a good job. And there's, there's, there, there's a handful of organizations here and it seems like there's a new one trying to get stood up every day. If people only knew how, what a pain in the ass nonprofits were, yeah, they, no, they, no. they probably wouldn't, they'd probably just join forces with somebody who's already doing a good job and I wish they would. Yeah. Um, but there, there's a lot of different, 
a lot of different ones out there. Some of the problems that I see is some of those organizations, they don't want to take anybody who's still addicted to drugs. They want them to already have gone through a program and, and they want to, uh, not have them have a child, you know, all of these things. And it's like, well, then who are you going to take, yeah. you know? And so we're, we're always looking for organizations that are willing to, to take somebody Anybody. directly out and, yeah. and say, Hey, we're here for you in, in Houston. There's, uh, the trafficking unit there is partnered with the international, um, YMCA. So they actually have part of their grant actually requires YMCA to be on station there and so these girls have a immediate place where they can go and, and be taken care of as well. But there's some other really good organizations in Houston. I just everywhere you go, I think in Atlanta, the dream center is amazing. They do amazing work and they're starting to scale out around the nation. We actually work with a 21 is a group out of California, but they, they kind of help us in the vetting for where these girls can go. Because at the end of the day, if we go out and get the traffickers and maybe we even get some Johns arrested, but the, the victims have to have that place to go and get, get treatment and, and get better. And while that doesn't crush the market, uh, it's definitely necessary. Yeah. And, and these are, these are people that need help and have been, have been just gone through the, the worst trauma. And so, yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of our cases had a girl who was, she was 12 years old. We got to her when she was 22. And so for 10 years, she had been bought and sold. Um, she was in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And she, I mean, this story just would break your heart. So but that's, but that's, um, you know, when we got to her, she literally thought that she was still in some ways, 12 to 14 years old. Yeah. She mentally had blocked out certain things and, and had, and boxed her life into these, these areas where, when we tried to get her, we, we bought her clothes, like normal fitting clothes. And she was super upset because she thought she was supposed to be wearing like child's clothes yeah. because that's what they'd been making her wear. And that's where she was. Um, just real quick. Yeah. So for that 10 year period, her, her parents, were they involved or they had, they thought she'd been kidnapped. Her father actually lived not 10 minutes away and didn't know any of this had disowned her and the mother. The mother was a heroin addict herself. God damn. At one point, the the mother didn't really know what was going on especially to the extent that it was but at one point she was sold to multiple traffickers as well during this 10-year period and she <laughs> just uh, uh just like it just gets me um but at one point the mother actually was buying drugs from the trafficker and and was able to come and see her daughter on like Saturdays and somehow that was like, she just, you know, like she had a certain level of, of, of acceptance, I think at that point of like, didn't really want to know about what all the stuff her, and her daughter, like, I mean, it's just a, it's a messed up situation. Right. But like that, I mean, yeah, I mean crazy. There's <laughs> so many, so many different levels of, there is of, um, uh, just ridiculousness to, to a story like that. That's that girl, like, how, how the fuck does that happen? That girl actually made the comments about, she had grown up in that city. And at one point, partway through one of her clients, um, she realized that that person was somebody who she had gone to school with. And she said later that, if the people 
that were that were doing this to her had known what her actual situation was, they would have never done the things that they did to her. Yeah. And a lot of a lot of times this goes back to where we were like, well, maybe it's just prostitution. Like, you know, it's been around forever. You know, there's another one of our, our uh, advocates who had, had been a trafficking victim. She was actually from Budapest and she was trafficked to Canada. They kept her passport. I mean, this is the same, same story that you, you write a movie about. Actually, they are making a movie about it. Um, but Tamea, she's awesome. She's, she's, she speaks to our law enforcement classes on how to treat victims and, and all that. And, and the, she tells a story about when she was training law enforcement actually up in Canada, but she had, she had told the story of where she was being held in this hotel and how she would sit and look out this window and all of these tragic things that were happening to her. She was becoming very, I mean, she lost like she was a normal weight, but she'd still lost like 30, 40 pounds was becoming extremely unhealthy, having to go to the hospital often, all kinds of infections, all kinds of issues. Um, and there was a, there was a, there was cars down there. And I think she even made the case or even said that there was, she, she thought that she saw a, a law enforcement officer down there. So she was giving this story to a bunch of law enforcement guys and actually called somebody in the back to come up and role play. And he said, no, which she thought was weird because they big burly cops usually aren't afraid of coming up and role playing and doing whatever. And so she said, fine, I'll take somebody from the front. Great. Carried on afterwards. He came up in tears, just moved beyond belief and said, you know, when you told that story, I, I was the guy in the parking lot. Like I was actually on duty and I knew that there was something going on, but I, every time I saw you girls, like you, you smiled and you waved. Like I, I couldn't, I happy. couldn't, I couldn't put it together. Like yeah. I didn't, I didn't, I just, I just didn't know. Yeah. Like to go back now, I know. And, and so I, I bring that story up because, you know, a lot of these girls, they're in a situation where like, oh, well they're a victim. They, they should surely know that they're a victim and they should surely take any, any opportunity to run and escape. And there's a point where they just reach the level of like, this is my life. Yeah. And they, there's a point where they also don't see themselves as a victim anymore. Yeah. And there's a point where they tell the cops to F off if yeah. the cops show up because they're like it's conditioned so and they're ingrained and they're in this whole deal. And so it takes a while sometimes to even be able to, to bring them in and, and, and to, to make them see that, Hey, you are a victim. These things happen to you. They're not your fault. And this isn't how life is supposed to be and, and to get them back on track. And so, you know, that, that's a big component of, of deliver fund of what you guys do is giving cops the tools to be able to identify, you know, putting intelligence packages together, giving them the software and, and, and the training to be able to, to both identify and dismantle these types of organizations, networks, et cetera. Correct. Yeah, absolutely. We partner with uh, a, a variety of organizations that, from you know big data, LexisNexis to, I mean, you can go online and see some of our partners, but cyber, cyber investigative companies, and IBM. I mean, we have a, a variety of, of partners that come in this and help in this fight to really to bring those technologies to law enforcement at, at, a, at a very affordable rate so that they can get it down to the, f- the forward edge of the battle. Yeah. 
That's fantastic. And before we kind of wrap up with all the contact info and and where we can find you guys, if you could just give uh, some quick parent tips other than I know we already talked about, you know, being being aware, having a conversation with the kid. Is there anything else you can add to that uh, as a takeaway for any parents listening that have have children at all to to be aware of and, and things that they can think about? And the days of, uh, you know, growing up in Montana and, and being gone out and somewhere all day and my parents not worrying about me, like, I think those days are gone. Yeah. Right. No, I know. I think you've, you've got to, you've got to be aware of where your, your child is. I think you for sure is not always going to solve the problem, but like have some location services on on there. If you, they've got a smartphone, you know, you, you have some sort of beacon or some sort of tracking device. So you actually know where your kid's at, you know, and and they may want to try and game it. And, and, but like, you know, like you've got to, you've got to be aware of where your kids are, what they're doing. And you really have to have the conversation with them about what this is. And like, you know, maybe it's, it's, um, you know, like I get, I keep going back to like the, the friends, are the ones who are going to probably step up and say something. So, you know, I think it's a matter of getting the information to your children, but also maybe working with your, your daughter's friends, their parents, and and just spreading that message and saying, Hey, like we want you guys all to be aware. These are the things you need to be aware of. And if any one of you sees something, you know, don't hesitate to report it. Speaking of which, like, you know, I think networking with other, other kids, parents is a, is a, is a great, great solution or great, uh, ad, um, provided, you know, let, let, let's say that, that, that does happen, that you do suspect something or whatever. Is there any online resources that are either connected to deliver fund or that you know of that, that people can go on to, to further educate themselves about this type of stuff or, or is it pretty, pretty barren that way? There's a lot of information out there and that, that's the tough part is, you know, it's hard to decipher through some of what's real and what's not real. But, um, I think as you just start to get into and just start looking up, uh, human trafficking, you're going to, you're there's starting to be more and more a wealth of information out there. There's, um, you know, one of the organizations that I always have a lot of respect for is actually Nick Mech. I, I quoted them before the national center for missing and exploited children. They're uh, they're a massive organization. They deal with missing kids. A lot of times people call us and say, Hey, my child's missing. Well, that call needs to go to law enforcement and needs to go to um, Nick Mech. Is, is um, Nick Mech a federally funded group? So about half of their funding comes um, from federal grants. And that's, that's John Walsh. Uh, oh, okay. The guy yeah. from America's Most Wanted yeah. and now The Hunted. He's kind of been a, a mentor to us, a mutual friend, and um, linked us up. And and so he's he's been he's given Deliver Fund a lot of really good advice. And and but we we are kind of becoming the the NICMEC, but for human trafficking. Yeah. And so, but but NICMEC does they do have a lot of information, and they have they have a very good. I mean, they, so they run about. I think it's, like I said, it's half from uh, private funding and half from federal funding, but yeah. to the tune of probably about a hundred plus million a year. Yeah. So they have a little better website than we do. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the graphic designers out <laughs> yeah. there. Yeah. yeah. Um, no, it's fantastic. We're uh, speaking of your website where, so for everybody listening that wants to help get involved, um, you know, and, and help support deliver fund where, where can, can we find you guys and what's the best way to do that? 
Yeah, we're we're rapidly learning how to use social media. <laughs> yeah, aren't we all? <laughs> For some people coming out of you know uh, special operations in the spy world, it's kind of a you know like it's it's a new development. Yeah. But that's that's where we are. And so we're on we're on every platform. We're on Twitter. We're on uh, Instagram. We're on Facebook, and we are on uh, LinkedIn. Okay. So uh, is we, it just we, at Deliver Fund? It, it's DeliverFund.org. Yep. In, ter- in terms of the social media, though, Instagram, yep. Facebook, is it yep. at Deliver Fun? Everything's, yeah. everything's at Deliver Fun. Okay. And so, yeah, follow us on there. Definitely follow us on there. We'll try and start putting out more content about some of our successes. We're, we're in a growing point where we are just kind of hitting that four-year mark. Yeah. And so we, we've built the capability. We've built the widget, if you will. And yeah. now it's just a matter of kind of uh, scaling it out. And one of those things is uh, is – is getting our message out there. Yeah. So you'll start to see us a lot more in the, in the media and stuff. We've just kept that kind of under wraps for a long period of time because, you know, you got to shift left and shift right and kind of finish yeah. building your product. And now that, you know, every, everything is, is we, we know exactly what we do. We know exactly how it's most effective. We've garnered those relationships with the U S attorney's office, with the uh, attorney general's offices. We, we know our legal left, right parameters and where we can best fit all of those things. And so now it's just a matter of getting our message out there, scaling it, talking about our, our successes that just, man, they happen like every day. Yeah. Um, we're blessed with a phenomenal team. If you're coming out of the veteran community and you did intelligence work and you, you hunted people down before, you know, we're happy to take your resume and, you know, as funds, as funds, uh, are there, we're, we're definitely hiring for that. It may not be immediate because uh, again, it, a lot of it comes down to funding. Yeah. Um, but we put together a centralized brain for all things, human trafficking. Uh, and we're casting that net across the United States in a very, very fast pace. And so there's nowhere these guys can run and hide. Yeah. I got to tell you, man, to, to hear, you know, the, the stories of your guys' success coupled with just how fucking prominent and, and prevalent uh, this problem is that uh, that is so pervasive in our fucking society. Uh, you know, I'm I, I can't tell you how fucking proud I am of of the job that you're that you that you have done that you continue to do, and that I know that you will do. Um, you know, and to be able to take take the skill sets learned in the military and, and apply them past going overseas and kicking kicking doors in and shooting people in the face. Um, you know, to be able to to now take take your character and, and, and your skill sets and experience and be able to, to infuse our society with that in such a positive manner is, is fucking amazing, man. And I, I, I love what you're doing. Like I said, I'm, I'm proud as shit that, uh, that you're doing it and, and killing it the way that you are, uh, and continue to crush the, the evil that exists, uh, with these networks. And, uh, and I know you'll continue to do so, um, for everybody listening, uh, for the love of shit, <laughs> go out and uh and help help support deliver fund if not like i always say fucking choke yourself <laughs> um you know because uh it's it's phenomenal work and and the fact is not to get all whitney houston on you but the children are our future and uh and you know if we don't fucking protect them nobody will and and that's the the quickest way uh for the downfall of a society to uh, to take place so uh, help deliver fund out uh go visit their website follow them and, and hook them up and uh 
As always, I, I want to end by saying uh, thank you to, to Mr. Mayhew here. I appreciate the hell out of you coming. Brother, you bet. And, uh, I actually brought you a challenge coin, too. Okay, um, yes, you know, I saw you got over there the whole Texas platform yeah. of challenge coins. This one's for Deliver Fun. It says uh, Deliver Fun Leading Hope. It uh, says for those who dare not look away, clearly, once you know about the problem, you, you, you can't look away. Yeah. Our, our uh, logo on there is a manila with a line through it, a manila, you can look online and we actually, on our website, we talk about it a little bit and it's a, um, it's actually an ancient form of, of slave currency, oh, no shit. Uh, you know, in, in Africa, they used to wear, uh, these pennants on their, uh, bracelets and stuff on their arm. And oh, then shit. slave traders started to collect them. At one point they were actually sold, uh, as slave currency on the Lloyds of London. But so that's a, a symbol for slavery. We, there's a big notch in it that we're putting as the final crack, but this, this brother is, Appreciate uh, that. Challenge going from Deliver Fun. Thank you very much. Want you I, have that. Yeah. Appreciate you having me on. No shit. I, I can't thank you enough for coming. I got I got one back uh, back behind me here for you uh, to take on on behalf of us too. But uh, fucking great work, man. I'm I'm proud of shit of you. Thanks for coming um, to all the listeners. Uh, as always, thank you for for listening. This show wouldn't be what it is and would not exist without your support. Go out there and uh, and support Deliver Fund and uh, and keep kicking ass and uh, appreciate the support for everybody. Thanks again for coming and uh, as always, this is Mike Drop. Before Sarah discovered ChumbaCasino.com, she enjoyed chamomile tea. Come on, big jackpot. And being in PJs by six. Let's go. The new fun Sarah often thinks about the old boring Sarah. And wonders if that Sarah ever really existed. Chumba Casino has over a hundred casino style games. So join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. No purchase necessary. We're prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I'm Nick, the host of the UFO Chronicles podcast. With first-hand witness accounts of the strange and unexplained. Covering UFOs, cryptids, conspiracies and the paranormal. Real people, real encounters. So come with us on the journey into the unknown. UFO Chronicles podcast is available to listen to on all apps. I'll see you soon. I'm Nick, the host of the UFO Chronicles podcast with first-hand witness accounts of the strange and unexplained. Covering UFOs, cryptids, conspiracies, and the paranormal. Real people, real encounters. So come with us on the journey into the unknown. UFO Chronicles podcast is available to listen to on all apps. I'll see you soon. The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The 
purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets Podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.